But you could call me the can man, because anybody can get it. Unbelievable! Dana! 60 G's, baby! Play clock at five. Pass is intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler! Welcome to episode 97 of the Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron. Today I'm joined by Tom Kennett and Alex Jones, the Dream Team. We're here together again. No guests, unfortunately. Uh, I know Rory was uh, keen to get on, but some other uh, difficulties and uh, scheduling issues have uh, prevented that. But hopefully we're giving something nice to listen to at work. Uh, just to get it out of the way quickly to uh, avoid any complaints, TK, we won't go into it too much, but if we just uh, quickly on the record state our uh, predictions for the NFL this weekend, won't go into it in any great depth, just literally a, a, a prediction on paper. So uh, if I just ask you for your predictions for uh, Chiefs Patriots and uh, Rams Saints. I'm saying maybe against my better judgment, Chiefs still get the job done despite the Patriots seemingly doing what they always do. Um, I'm going to go Rams to get the job done as well. I don't think I, I've only seen really the highlights of the uh, the Saints Eagles games, but I won't I won't say that I was that convinced by what the Saints produced. I think the Rams are good enough to get the job done. I'm a uh, similar to you, except I am going to go against my better judgment, and uh, I'm going to go Patriots. I just have a horrible feeling that. They just, they just have a way. You shouldn't bet against them, should you? No. Um, and they seem to have a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Brady said uh, last night, everyone seems to think we suck. Uh, Gronk's uh, talking about him retiring at the end of this season because he refuses to take passes from anyone other than Brady. <laughs> so it looks they might have one last hurrah in them, at least to get to the Super Bowl. So now we've got... Uh, Past that, we've got plenty to get into. We've got the return of I Can't Believe That Was On TV. I can't believe that was on TV! If uh, things have gone to plan, then uh, you've just heard our brand spanking new jingle. In fact, uh, we may even leave a little moment for it now. We'll play it twice. I can't believe that was on TV! Just to make sure everyone's heard it, but this time, uh, after a bit of consideration, there's still a lot of life left in this segment. We've got plenty. I was uh, speaking to TK earlier, and today we're going to get into uh, the live TV edition. Things you can't believe happened on live TV. Just to wipe out, because we don't want to get too uh, deep, dark, or sentimental on here. We won't talk about any live sports. We won't talk about anything such as 9-11, Saddam being executed, space shuttle exploding. Not to gloss over those things, but... We're not that type of pod. So we've got plenty other than that to get into. If I start us off, we do like our uh, foreign shows here at Spitballing Pod. And if we start at the uh, Polish news program uh, entitled Questions for Breakfast in in their own language, of course, they had a magician come on. He was going to give them a demonstration with a a magic trick. Essentially, he had... uh, 
three brown paper bags. Underneath one of them was uh, a, a long, spiky nail. And his whole thing is uh, he can get someone to shuffle him at random. He's then confident enough that not with his own hand, he can slam someone else's hand down on the bag. And he'll be able to know which one has the nail in it to avoid it. He's uh, singled out a nice uh, female presenter on the show to uh, demonstrate the trick and show just how good he is. We do have his name here. Uh, Marcin uh, Poloniewicz. So if you see him performing and he uh, asks for volunteers, he you don't want to get on stage. But as you can imagine, he uh, slammed the hand down on the bag. This was the bag with the nail in it. He was this confident in his trick that he was convinced at first that she was lying. He thought she was joking until he looked and saw there was blood coming out of her hand. Oh my god. They had to cut, they had the old school uh, beep, shut everything down, um, comes back on, she's no longer on screen, she's been shipped to hospital, uh, she's not on TV for a week then, and uh, when she comes back she's got a big bandage wrapped around her hand. She said it caused no permanent damage, but uh, as you can imagine it wasn't a pleasant uh, experience to go through. What country was this again? Poland. Ugh. Did she not sue him for like? She could sue her own, but she wanted, unless she like signed a waiver before. Yeah, there's but... probably waivers involved with things like well, that. Well, I guess the thing essentially, she can say she doesn't want to do it. No one's forcing her to have her hand slammed down. So we're getting into our Kelly territory. Yeah. Careful. <laughs> <laughs> we there won't be going on that either. Thankfully, none of that was on live TV. I don't know what what's he been up to. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's that's not for the podcast. But, <laughs> but uh, don't listen to any of his music. Alright, we'll continue from there then and we'll go into the semi-final of Vietnam's Got Talent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, a guy called uh, Tan Fat, which is his general name, Fat with a PH, um, was playing his own version of Russian Roulette. Uh, he had four shots of water, one shot of acid, and he claimed that uh, as they all look the same, he can get someone to shuffle them up, pour acid into one of the shot glasses, He'll be able to know which one's which, drink all of them, and uh, leave the one that has the acid in it. Live TV, obviously, you can't really uh, coax these things, but when he's had to uh, call paramedics on because his uh, whole throat is burning with the acid that he's just drank, <laughs> you can imagine things didn't go to plan. <laughs> so that's that's what live TV does for you. They say producers say there's no thrill like it, and that's why. <laughs> And deep down, everyone watching that has been hoping for that to happen. If you ever watch someone do a stunt, you ever watch someone, you don't hope they get it right. Unless it's something like wildly spectacular. A guy downing shots of water, best thing that happens, he doesn't have the acids. So you want a bit of drama. He survived. He uh, burned all the way down his throat. I don't know how his voice is these days, but he lived to tell the tale, uh, maybe through sign language. If we carry on then, so this one's uh, one that we'll all be familiar with in Darren Brown, who's had his uh, fair share of live TV moments. And we're not going to talk about the the lottery one, which I still don't really know the understanding. I see people say he explained it, but it doesn't really mean much. And I don't know about you, I, I was reading some things on him today and people were saying, which makes a lot of sense when you put it like that, his whole shtick, I suppose, is to essentially talk you into a state of submission in that you're so confused that you just believe, you just nod and say <laughs> you believe what he's doing. 
But this one in particular, which is a tense for live TV, I mean, the lottery numbers, as we said, best thing that happens, he gets the numbers, and then everyone's going to call him a liar anyway and say, oh, why didn't you put it on? (laughs) So for this one, he essentially got a member of the public to load a gun, and he said that he could go through and he could tell one after the other which one was going to be a blank round that he would fire into sand, and the one he'd fire his head, he would say, this is the one which had been missed out of the chamber. But there's a point about halfway through where he fires into the sand and it's a blank round. And there's like a minute's break in the transmission where he's looking, almost thinking, that was supposed to be a bullet going into the sand. <laughs> Either that or he's just building uh, suspense. suspense, which he obviously did very well if so, because he then, in, uh, I guess, honour of being the magician, puts it to his head, fires it, blank round, he's got away with it. <laughs> I saw another one he did with them where he um, like took an audience member's money and then said like he would be able to call the roulette one. I don't know if you saw it, but he'd be able to call the number exactly. So he went on like a in an unnamed casino in Europe. They had a live camera there, which he had to sneak in. They can do, and he had to guess the right number of a thousand, I think it was a thousand pound, might be more, but of an audience member's money. And they were like, "You're going to get all this money," and he's like, "I'm going to promise you, I can work it out." And did a whole show of how he'd worked this out, and uh, he fell one short. And just left out, and he's like, "I'm really sorry, mate. I've lost your money." <laughs> I've I've actually seen him live. I've been to one of his live shows. Have you? Is it? Does it? Is it one of those things you, where you don't want to see behind the curtain? It's difficult. I mean, I first of all, the show was brilliant. It, it lived up to expectation. Um, I can't help but feel though, is you witness it, and there's like so the the part where he's trying to mesmerise the entire audience with like a trick, and then he picks the person who seems to respond to it best. He picks out that. I kind of, I tried to. I almost wanted it to like happen, and you try and force yourself to that's do into it. Say, yeah. So it kind of that's where it can come from. And the person he ended up choosing is just like you. Just it's an easy plant thing if you wanted to. Don't you think with it on when it's like on TV? I'm not, I'm not saying this one was, but people will act up for it just to have their five minutes. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing as well, which I kind of respected, was he did go into uh, like the people who said that they can talk to people from beyond the grave that like like that, and he summarised it quite well in terms of if you if somebody from beyond the grave, a loved one, genuinely wanted to talk to you from beyond. Would they really do it for a Liverpudlian woman in, in the town centre somewhere, something like that? No disrespect to Liverpudlian women listening, of course. Yeah, but that's the thing I was going to touch on. He does, in all his shows, kind of slate people that um, like pretend to be a medium or whatever. And he kind of disposes of all that sort of myth around that. So he kind of, I guess, takes away sort of the superstition around his own show in a way. Mm. But you could say that's potentially a bit like a shroud for him because it's making it it's making him feel like one of us in terms of like, well, yeah, is that easy a pal who tells you the truth? Isn't it his thing that he is one that insists magic doesn't exist? He wants you to question everything and just he admits it's an illusion essentially if yeah, he can yeah. fool you. Yeah. Because obviously like uh hypnosis and that is a thing, but I'm not sure you train or whatever it is to make someone act like a chicken when you snap your fingers or whatever. <laughs> so that's far more impressive because there was a big thing about um, ethics for his most recent one on Netflix. I didn't see it because people reveal the ending after these days. So close your ears here if you if, if you don't want to know, as in YouTube as well. But the, his whole recent one is he essentially is putting all this stuff into your head to see if when it comes to the end of this uh, scenario, 
Yeah. Yeah, I watched it. And they, they do, don't they? Or have I, if not, then I've ruined it for myself. <laughs> there's... I don't want to ruin it, so no, but it's, it's not quite it. like what you'll think. It. Yeah, there's it's kind of like a split where... Well, the, the thing you is, should watch it. Is it worth a watch? He, he has done some really Yeah, good... I can see why there's some ethical issues. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, he does do some awful things to this bloke as well. Well, the thing is, he has done some really uh, like clever things that are quite like genuine in terms of like he did the whole one with the um, showing like the mob mentality. Have you seen that one where he like gets the audience to basically act like a mob? And then ultimately they don't realise the consequences of what that can actually do, but they felt safe doing it because it was a group of people. Yeah. Well, um, there was a phase where he was literally on TV like every weekend. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't get him off Channel 4, could you? Yeah. yeah. He, um, the, the one thing that he does as well is um, is that he's a ma- you say he claims that he's a master of like reading people. Um, so there's like certain things that he can do, like certain things that we do, which immediately exactly reveal what your mind is thinking which is what he basically says is easy to tell like you know what your numbers are what your card is and all that sort of stuff um and i kind of can get on board with that because i like through like various sort of like professional training for like pt and stuff that i've had in the past i was quite surprised when i learned that seven the the main way that we communicate as human beings the best way and the most recognized way is is not speech touch it's actually it was body language so that quite surprised me to hear that and it so i think there's must be some genuine like he can read people like a book most young men learn that in nightclubs <laughs> <laughs> she's not interested in you mate forget about it just the, the last thing on this there's, there's a tv show which has gone on recently and i've seen several people say the same thing but the big sell is this bloke claims he's paying honor to all these uh magicians previously who've died doing their stunts and essentially his whole show is that these people died doing it in honor of them i'm going to show you that i can actually do it and i'm not going to die <laughs> doing the stunts and it's a whole show and he makes out like he's being really like respectful to all these people doing it but the ones like uh david blaine and dynamo and that who are more claimed to be magicians the thing that annoys me is i almost they briefly you want to know but then at the end you don't really want to know do you, you want to be impressed with what it is and there's always people in Facebook comments, this is so ridiculous, this is how you do it. Because there's one on uh, Dave, David Blaine's recent, most recent one on Netflix, probably last year, uh, maybe even two years ago, where he's doing one with uh, the Smith, uh, like Will Smith and that, and he yeah. takes a picture and he makes like a card change on the phone screen. Mm-hmm. But you can see by the reactions when it's like set up or not. But yeah, it is ridiculous some of the things they can do. But moving on, we've got plenty of worse things to get into than that. And if I lower the tone a bit here. So the date is uh, July 15th, 1974, um, which is a fateful day for Christine Chubbuck, who was uh, do what she did for the last few years. And she read the morning news live for uh, WXLT TV in Florida. Um, and everything was going according to plan until she went off script and uh, eerie, like they said, an eerie calmness said, uh, in keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts and in living colour, you're going to see another first attempted suicide. She then pulled out the gun, shot herself in the head on live TV what? in 1974. And then when uh, they obviously cut, but what's come out since is uh, she'd written the whole news piece for what they would read out after she was dead. 
and they, she read out who was going to take over for her. They read out cause of death. They read out the time and everything like what? to a T that she'd read out. Um, so yeah, she even in the note said, this is going to take over after I've committed suicide and all sorts like this. They said there was no clear motive. I mean, it's 1974. So it's obviously uh, things were a bit different in terms of uh, the detective work. But yeah, this was probably the darkest one on the list oh. in live TV that I've just kind of <laughs> snuck into the list. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah, but that was... Uh, I'll say one of the cooler ones, but it's reading things like that. Just the note after, I would thought, okay, it's like a standard thing. And then the note after that she had just left on the table with the news report of her being dead. Presumably this was before the days of like co-presenters. What's, what's, <laughs> what's the man next to us supposed to be doing at this point? Well, this is the thing. There's several people who have been killed on live TV, whether it's uh, suicide, whether police have chased, whether America, where they love filming the, the police chases, there's numerous people who've killed themselves on TV. But this one just had that, yeah, camera. just the eeriness yeah. to it. There's there's several other newsprinters have done it, but just not in the same way. So, carrying on from there, it's still not particularly dark. But if we can look behind uh, the premise of war and just think about being in this situation, if you go back to the Vietnam War, where they essentially had to do the draft lottery, and so they literally picked out like dates of birth and drew that. And there's so we're just saying on this like. Imagine sitting at home, just crowded around the TV, just looking for your date of birth to pop up and know whether you're going to be shipped to war. People you don't like looking for their date of birth with your fingers crossed going, come on, come on. Oh, I only got two numbers this time. But yeah, that that just thinking about it was mental. To do it in such an insensitive way. I know they're probably saying it's the fairest way to do it. On live TV, though, I don't know that... I guess it's the only way of making sure it's authentic, but Jesus... Alright, continuing on further then. So if we go to uh, the first episode of a 2011 Dutch TV show um, translated to guinea pigs, and this one was on live TV. And so people didn't really know what they were getting in for. It's one of those, I think they hyped it up by the sounds of it. Like You're not going to believe what you're going to witness. Essentially, the two contestants had undergone minor surgery before to remove bits of their flesh. And then later in as the task, they pulled a what is supposed to be a celebrity chef out to cook the pieces of flesh and they then had to eat each other's flesh as part of it and there's a big storm about how they should be arrested because cannibalism is illegal but essentially because they both were in like agreement with it there's nothing wrong with it it was like the same <laughs> as like kissing someone's cut or something along those lines was the TV host called Hannibal by any chance <laughs> didn't get that one down if you google it, there's interviews with them but I thought we could be here for a while <laughs> and I'd, my Dutch isn't great but no, it's on YouTube and everything with them like sizzling it in the pan and all sorts. Yeah, the the name I won't even pronounce, uh, attempt to pronounce it. In this vegan day and age, you couldn't do such a thing anymore. You have to have the corn option as well. Get Piers Morgan to do that. <laughs> and just one final one then to get into before we get into some sports, because we do have plenty to get into. And this one goes back as uh, far as October 2009. And this one is uh, essentially in Colorado. There are reports flying in of, I say flying in, of an air balloon that had taken off and they claimed that there was a kid in there. And so all throughout the day, they had uh, the news channels following this balloon in the air. And about halfway across, they realized that they haven't actually seen the child in there yet. And so they created even more frenzy saying the kid must have fallen out. It got to like right near the end of the day and they've had a phone call into the news station from the parents saying, 
you won't believe this. We've just found him in the attic. This was just let off. We assumed he was in there. And so they were saying then how it was just a hoax by the parents to get this going. But they had this media frenzy all day with people claiming they'd seen the kid in there. They hadn't. People saying, oh my God, he's fallen out. They had like people getting emotional, crying on the news, talking about their own kind of tales of this. And yeah, it went on all day and it never happened. It was just that easy to plant a story and let it go. There was no uh, prosecutions made, but it's now widely believed that it was just a hoax and these people were just trying to have a bit of fun with their with their day. Would, would you ever get in a hot air balloon? I'm not sure. I'm, I don't like the idea I don't of like the me, idea. a basket and a balloon. I just, I it's just, just like there's that's... no way, if it goes, there's no way you can save it. In a plane, even in a plane. Just you looking think... at a plane, it just looks a bit more sturdy. I yeah, don't like right. the idea that the, the yeah. only thing... I mean, it's des- a plane is designed to fly. A balloon is a sense there to float, but if anything goes wrong, it don't glide. No. <laughs> <laughs> it don't glide down, it hits terminal velocity and that's it. <laughs> um, it's, I'm surprised with that that whole news thing. I mean, like, I'm surprised there weren't any daring rescue attempts or anything like that. I'm now picturing oh, in my head, like, you know, getting the Red Bull teams with those wingsuits <laughs> because you can't, you can't use a helicopter because it would get the balloon and you can't, you can't parachute in because it just wouldn't work. I mean, you know, you'd have to come from in at an angle with the Red Bull, the Red Bull wings. I mean, obviously it wasn't live, but I don't know if uh, TK remember ages ago, we did a bit on the podcast of uh, sports stories that could potentially be turned into films. And going with kind of just the plant in the story, there was a college athlete then whose whole thing was based behind the adversity he'd risen from with his uh, grandmother and his girlfriend both dying. And it turned out after the season when he got all these sponsorship deals, they were showing all his games, they were willing him on. Neither ever existed. He just had these fabricated names. People hadn't bothered to look into it. And it became this massive story. And he got all these like endorsements from it and things like that. So that shows how easy it is that people want to believe a story, then they're going to believe it, particularly in America. These vigilantes, like you said, trying to save the air balloon, how soon would it be before this kid in this air balloon, as someone had tweeted, Paul Gascoigne has turned up a fishing rod (laughs) ready to save him? Stories about Paul Gascoigne recently. I'm not sure he's the bloke you want turning up, particularly particularly on your transport. We're back. The next uh, big segment after I Can't Believe That Was On TV changed my mind the second time we're doing it in the new year. Seemed to go down a treat last week as far as we were aware. We backed Alex into the corner. I'm here to pull him out and this week we're taking on TK. (laughs) We've gone against the grain here because we did uh, say on last week's pod that it was going to be the other way around. But in line with uh, recent news, Andy Murray had his big press conference earlier this week talking about how he can't really go on with the injuries he's had anymore. He's since lost today and said he'd be more than happy if that was his last game. He feels he went out on uh, a good enough performance to say that I couldn't really have given any more. And uh, TK, we we got this wrong last week. If you want to give us your statement and uh, the slogan and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Okay then. Andy Murray is Brit- Britain's greatest ever sports person. Changed my mind. All right, Alex, it's down to us. So uh, do you want to kind of outline your basic point and then we'll get into it as we did? Okay, obviously in terms of the numbers, three Grand Slams, 45 career titles, um, the main thing you're going to be seeing there is that Wimbledon for the first time since 1936, all the pressure that goes with that, etc., etc. Um, two Olympic gold medals within there as well. I know we tend to 
a lot of the sports people we champion tend to be Olympic gold medalists as well, but so he's, he does also have that within there. Um, Captain them to the first Davis Cup since 1936 as well, which hadn't been done. He won all 11 of his games, which was unprecedented. Um, and I think when you do these things, you've got to look at probably individual sports predominantly because it's difficult to win it in a team sport. Um, and also what we alluded to last week when uh, Alex was talking about the darts in terms of as athletes, you look at physical exertion and skill. To not many uh, sort of fields test that quite as much as tennis, I would argue. Um, and I think he's been a leading light in that for us in, in a time where before that British tennis was kind of seen as a bit of a laugh. People tend to laugh at us like Hemlund, etc., etc., who tend to be a bit of a, a farce in the world, I think. Yeah, we, we've kind of teetered on doing that as a topic so many times in uh, which sport uh, is the most physical, but it would be impossible to do it with Alex here because we know which one he's going to go for. So we'd have to save that for a week he wasn't on. <laughs> but for me, I would say the way we got into it when Alex was talking about David Silva last week is we the first question we asked was, is he even the best player on that team? And I would ask, is uh, Murray even the best British tennis player? So I know we uh, you ascertained there several times to uh, Fred Perry essentially, and if you mm. look if you look at his career, and I I know it's a different time, but just on paper I would say how you're going to look back on things. I, I've seen a lot saying that we can be a prisoner of the moment, and I think it can go too far one way, and it can also go too far the other. So I don't think me or Alex are by any means going to. We're not saying that he's like ridiculous to have Murray in the conversation but I think we're both saying that there's several others that you can get into so when you look at uh, Fred Perry won 10 more titles um, something I thought um, was interesting when you look at legacy was they say that he changed the game when I was doing some reading up on him so essentially they were saying that back then tennis was like for the small and the dainty it was a serve and volley get yourself around the court and he was showing that there was something a bit different. He was big, he was physical. And they said that he actually, for the next uh, five to ten years after, ruined the growth of tennis for uh, young British people because they all tried so hard to be like him and not everyone was built like him. And so I think something we said about uh, sort of the measuring stick for Silver was how you change the game. And I think he did change the game in that aspect in that you could be more of a power server, you didn't just have to stick with the traditional methods. Um, something I also thought that you uh, would have to look at, he did do all this in trousers. <laughs> when, when you weigh it up, trousers to shorts. And maybe the, the thing I thought of most when, uh, when looking at tennis and something that would maybe put it into uh, perspective is uh, Stan Wawrinka has three Grand Slam titles just like Murray. Olympic gold medal, a Davis Cup. And Murray's almost spoken about like he's on his par with like Djokovic, Federer and Nadal. And then, may, uh, unless you could say it's that Favrinka is just painfully understated because he's not even spoken about as one of Switzerland's best sports stars. So may, would you say that Murray is this way or are we just appreciating him maybe a bit more than he's worth? Well, when that was put to Favrinka, he actually said, no, Murray's clearly on a different level to me and in belonged in the conversation as a top four rather than me. Mainly his reasoning being that Murray's level of consistency over that period was something that he had never been able to compete with. Obviously, you've got the sort of the occasions that Murray's become a runner-up on there that kind of outnumber the amount of finals appearances that Frank has made quite considerably. Uh, I think the thing with Perry is a slightly... I'm not going to say ridiculous argument, but it's... 
only because I think tennis is very much a sport that you can say the current players are at a different level to even say 20 years ago, so let alone with Perry's day. The thing you touched on with the trousers, <laughs> I mean, as, as much as we're kind of saying it quite tongue-in-cheek, you, the fact that you could play the game in trousers and win is, is <laughs> speaks volumes. If you look at the equipment they used, if you look at the sort of as a athletic game, their serves would have been probably about 60 miles an hour with a wooden racket where Murray's doing maybe 140 dealing with it from other guys. You could say about changing the game. When Murray first came into it, Hemman was, say, a perennial top 10 player. And his game was based off predominantly serve and volley, kind of similar tactics to what you'd said that came into that game at that point. He had to deal with, Murray then had to deal with a change of game whereby people like Nadal and Federer were kind of playing all around the court. And the the physicality that kind of went with that, I think, is on such a different level. I mean, the most easy comparison would be like saying that Bill Russell's better than LeBron because of the titles. But if you look at basketball, such a more different game from now, I think tennis is kind of that, but tenfold more. Do you do you think? And obviously, this we're talking about Britain, so this isn't really a point to negate him. Do you think maybe we give Murray more appreciation because of what happened in the previous between Perry then and Murray? So do you think, say, Henman had been more successful, maybe not to the extent, say, Henman had been at the level of Nishikori, so in the, in the top ten, but not pushing to be in that top three, four content. Do you think we then have Murray in the same bracket or do you think it's because we've had the jump from a guy who, it was almost like the England football team, it was a running joke to go, oh, oh we're going to go out yeah. here, that kind of thing. So do I, you think he gets appreciated more because of that? I think whenever you all kind of start success for a long period of time, you're naturally going to be more grateful when you do get kind of thrown a bone, if you like. But I do think the thing that you've always got to think with Murray is even when he was coming through, he wasn't particularly well liked. It wasn't particularly popular. So as a result, I don't think there was that, oh, we need a new hero, we'll jump on this guy sort of feel about it. I think it was just that. He kind of got to this sort of stage where he's at now, partly through sheer hard work with talent that we hadn't really seen before. We spoke about that, didn't we, a bit on Saturday without getting into the uh, debate because we wanted to save it. But he was al- he's almost been criticised for not saying he's British and saying mm. he's Scottish. But then we were talking about our other stars. So say Rooney in the build-up to the World Cup had said, you know what, we're British. I don't really see myself as English. Then he'd have been... Yeah. Yeah. He'd have been uh, terrorised. So no, I think that probably goes against him now. I don't know if it's a, a part of the... You can hate him when he's losing and now he's got kind of... Mm. If he'd gone out not in this fashion... Then I wonder if it would be said in the same way of, oh, he's the greatest. If he'd gone out, say, on top, would we then say, oh, but he still wasn't as good as so-and-so? Or if it's because we do like to get behind. I'm not saying he's an underdog, but we we like this kind of story. Yeah, that is true. We we do like that type of thing. But then if you go out on top, then you'll get the sort of the other side of the argument. They'll say, oh, well, he wasn't typically British because he was a winner. I, he, we tend to like, like you said, the underdog. So if he was winning everything we'd have the opposite argument and say, oh, he wasn't the quintessential British player and that's why he's the best. So, I think I think a fair way to some, like, so obviously, a good way of summarising on occasion, particularly when he was against Djokovic at his best, Federer at his best, and Dal at his best, is he's the plucky Brit in terms of he, we knew he wasn't potentially the best, but on a day, he could get them. 
if you were like he showed he... himself to be that he could compete on that level though didn't he it he, wasn't he, like yeah yeah he did it wasn't like i think him and Djokovic kind of gate crashed the party of yeah. Nadal and Federer and obviously Djokovic kind of got there quicker yeah but I think yeah, Murray the... Murray one of the maybe the biggest compliments you can pay to him is that he had kind of three of the greatest players of all time ahead of him and he kind of made it a big four it could have been a, a big three plus one i think you can legitimately call it a top four this is my this is my one sort of criticism of of people who say Murray is the best, and that is the simple fact that the other people that you bring into this this sort of area of who is the best British sports person of all time, all were the best in their sport at that given time, the best in the world. They were, and and I feel like with Murray to to say the standard. Of, that we're talking about here in terms of the best of all time. People say it's not really fair to like judge him for his lack of achievements versus the best of all time because they were the best. But is it right to sort of say that he's the best or not the best just based on like him, other athletes being better? So, I mean, he had 37 weeks uh, as as the number one. So he was at least uh, the top dog for, for uh, a brief time. But I guess... The comparison, I know you said with um, Perry was Perry was top for two years. I know the com the competition levels were different, but I guess when you weigh it up, you would say, would you do you value thirty seven weeks against certain competition against a longer period against the com- against the competition there? But it's kind of like uh, the side Alex has fought on the other side of where he says, look, you can't compare these old players to the younger ones in that you don't know how Perry would have done. But the thing against mainly against Alex's argument with um, saying that the other Brits we've got were the best in their field at that point is that unfortunately they I don't think they had competition that was like Nadal, Federer, Djokovic. It's if we had a footballer say that was right on the heels of Ronaldo and Messi, if it was they were kind of the undisputed top three say in the world, and we were just behind it, they'd almost automatically be in the argument for our greatest sportsman. Because if they had that sort of level of consistency that they'd shown, that's basically what we're talking about, isn't it? When we're talking about the top four tennis players, it'd be like Ronaldo and Messi. If you had two extra ones on there, had a clear top four on that sort of level. That's the sort of realms he's competing in. I think a lot of the other people, I'm sure you're both going to mention, when you, when you kind of look at the minutiae of it, look at the competition that they had, was it when you look down the, the greatest ever to do the field, how many of them were competing in their prime against them? Would you? Would so you? I'd, I'd, for example, I'd rather have someone like Murray compete against one of the best and for sure than someone rack up gold medals who didn't have that level of competition. There's, there's more sense of achievement in that for me. I, would you? Would you say though that I mean, essentially, the way I look at the tennis world is the best tennis player in the last t- twenty ten years is Roger Federer, mm-hmm. and I think if we were Swiss having this conversation, regardless of how well Djokovic and Nadal have done, he's comfortably the best. I think when you're on top, you look at it entirely differently in terms of, like, we're looking at Murray and trying to make the best of what he is, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, but again, but this isn't the bay of who's the best tennis player, is it? It's that's, that's what I was about to British say. British sportsman. So rather if, than... If we were talking about the best Swiss sportsman, we'd probably talk about <laughs> Federal Granit Xhaka, obviously exactly. the, the natural first two He choices. actually won their Swiss sportsman of the year. <laughs> uh, Alex, if we continue on, because as we said, we, we're in danger of just having a full-on uh, tennis uh, debate here. Do you want to chuck one of the names out that you think should be in contention of, of being ahead of Murray? 
Okay, so an easy way to go is obviously chucking in um, our like our most decorated Olympian of all time. Um, but um, Ke- I'm not actually going to go with Kenny. I'm actually going to go with Wiggins at the moment um, because <laughs> because first of all, first of all, just to just we we look. I feel like so, and quite rightly so. I'm not saying that this is the wrong way to look at it, but with tennis. Obviously, a lot of the sportsmen which we can mention as the greatest British sportsman of all time is going to be tainted by potential doping and and allegations. And it's all quite that a big black mark. Yeah, it is. It is. And the, and the the genuine nature of tennis is that you could be doing all of that stuff, but at the end of the day, you've still got to make all the right psychological conditions of moves on the pitch. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of like they could be you know sporting in hands. But it's only advantage; it's not a guarantee. Whereas in the other sports, like you know, cycling, sprinting or whatever, sprinting, it's a little bit more. It is a little bit more. They are physically just need to travel in a straight line. Yes, there's still elements of skill involved and thinking, but still, it has more of an effect. Um, so I think like people disregard a lot of people like Bradley Wiggins. Ultimately, Bradley Wiggins, when you talk about the best sportsman of all time. He is definitely one of the most loved of all times. Um, not as much as recent years, but he was one of the most loved. He's probably one of the most iconic in terms of for being British. I think these things are important to talk about when we talk about the greatest sports because it's that showmanship as well. Uh, how could that all fall come away if something did come out? It does. You it then does. become the complete villain of the piece. Yeah. And one of your big selling points is yeah. gone. Um, but ultimately, so Bradley Wiggins did something that had never been done before. Um, he also did it. I don't think people quite appreciate how, not as much maybe his first tour win, uh, but how difficult it was to beat the other people around him in all of his other wins, uh, particularly the time trialing and the gold medals. Uh, for him to beat um, uh, Tony Martin, the the German Panzer tank as they call him, uh, he to be able to beat him not once but twice in his last world championships in the nature that he did I think showed the the top class that he was and obviously he's then gone back and very questionably defied the impossible and got another gold medal Um, but until he's proven guilty that is a level of achievement which is hard to match again though you kind of touched on yourself. The tricky thing of it, it is hard to overlook the, the sort of the potential doping scandal there. And and if he is guilty of anything, then the whole thing is tainted, isn't it? The whole, it's like you said, if you found out a tennis player is doping, for example, you might say, all right, that's that's dirty, that's cheating, but there is obviously a huge element of skill to what he's done. Where in fine margins like cycling, where a millisecond could kind of be the difference, doping is such a yeah. such a problem to it's, overlook. It's whether you can write him off now without it coming out. I mean, I, I'm on the side of, um, we have alluded to on the pod previously. Yeah, yeah. that is quite shameless from Alex. Yeah, he, <laughs> if he comes out of Mo Farah next, I'm going to be done. I, I will say, for if you kind of consider there's a black mark against a lot of cyclists, whatever, I will give Wiggins credit in terms of he's done it in the village of Oman on the road. I will give credit for that. But yeah, there's too much. I mean, the other thing with him as well, I touched on team sports. In both his fields, in terms of Team GB and Team Sky, he's working with elite teams that are current kind of clear leaders in their fields and the main the main controversy with uh, Froome and Wiggins the sort of beef that supposed there was the year Wiggins won it they were basically saying that they basically wanted Wiggins to win it wasn't it it was they could have put Froome in there yeah so in, in, essentially, in which, essentially Froome could have won it kind of sentimental reasons they thought we want Wiggins yeah. to be the first guy to do this yeah and they, then we'll let you carry on after because Wiggins can retire or whatever yeah definitely so in, in which case it, you could have easily put Froome in there instead of him so as much as 
it's a great achievement for Wiggins being the first. It could have been Froome. It could have been maybe someone else they put in. Well, to and, be, and maybe to, Froome's in with a better argument than Wiggins. Well, that's the thing. But I think, but then he's got his I, own black mark I, I that you can can't only, overlook as well. I, I can only go so far in terms of suggesting. I, I'll allude to Bradley Wiggins, um, but I won't. I can't say Froome. But if you were to just disregard disregard the. Oh, everything that surrounds him and just purely look at it's as good as saying Froome is achieved what, what <laughs> he's, so many words what, what he's achieved on an achievement level I, I genuinely don't think should be physically possible in the standard of the sport yeah, I'm not sure I it mean is. it's it, to win three grand tours technically back to back hold all three grand tours uh, uh, that's I never thought Not we'd feasible. ever see. It's like, it, do you know what? I, I kind of don't actually accept that it's happened because it's that <laughs> impossible to feed. Yeah. When you're in an endurance sport, to appreciate how difficult that was to do, I didn't even care. I mean, if he's the only one who is doped up and everybody else, <laughs> to still be able to achieve that, it's mental. Absolutely mental. Now, you know I like to get the old gem on here. And so this one would be my choice, although I will admit that it, I think I know where you're serious contention. I think I know where you're going to go with this because I think I've I found something when I was doing a bit of research as well. Yeah. So uh, there's a guy uh, called Max uh, Woosnam. Is this who? You, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you go for sportsman, then this would be the one that you would go in. I there. might call a jack of all trades. Yeah. But all right, carry on. So uh, for those that haven't heard of him, and I hadn't until Saturday night. Um, he probably takes the cake when you break it down. Among his achievements. Uh, He's won an Olympic gold uh, and a silver at the 1920 Summer Olympics within tennis. He won the doubles at Wimbledon. He's uh, got on record a 147 break in snooker. Uh, he scored a century at Lords uh, cricket round. He's captain the British Davis Cup team. He's captain Man City, uh, who finished runners up in the football league that year in 1920 and 21, and he captained the England uh, national football team. This was all post-war, before the war. He uh, was playing for Corinthians out in Brazil, who he then had to leave to go and sign up uh, for the war. Uh, so, I mean, he literally has honours in just about every sport that you can have. Uh, just a little bit of trivia on him as well, which I read. Um, there's supposedly a, a picture, uh, if you uh, search for it, of him playing against uh, actor and uh, film director Charlie Chaplin. And he's playing him at tennis and he beat him when he had a bat and he used a butter knife. What? Yeah, and there's there's a picture of this out there and this is him saying, look, I'm this good at just about everything I tried to play. He'd have been that guy you hated. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, as far as it goes, then he would be in there, but I do, I would yeah. say if if uh, if he was that good at any one in particular, maybe he uh, may have been out. It's, it's a great, he's obviously had a great life, it's a great story. Um the main thing about him, and it's the thing that holds against Perry as well, and tennis is one of the sports, and all of those were as well, that they were amateur as well. They didn't, most of them didn't go professional. I can't remember the... I think tennis didn't go professional ranks until I think it was the 50s or 60s. It's one of the big arguments against Rod Laver being the greatest ever, for example. So it's, it's just such a, a different game that you, you can't really compare. Yeah, I've got two others to chuck in, which I think uh, even you... Uh will be aligned with even if you're not saying they're the greatest and that is uh, both uh, Lennox Lewis and Joe Calzaghe. Yep. Um with if we go for Joe Calzaghe first just to go through it so longest reigning super middleweight uh world champion in boxing history to date held the WBO title for over 10 years 21 successful defenses before moving up to light heavyweight I will say uh the main thing is why why I wouldn't have Calzaghe as my number 1 would be uh 
the the levels in competition between his heights in competition, which is held against him. You speak to people uh, these days and it's a bit different to what you'd see on a documentary where they do say about there were some very low lows in terms of uh, the opponents before you got to the highs. But I mean, even with that, you've still got on the record um, that he's the first super middleweight boxer to unify uh, three of the four major titles and in doing that uh, beat Chris Eubank, Robin Reed, Richie Woodall, your man, <laughs> Jeff Lacey, Saki Obika, Mikel Kessler, Bernard Hopkins and Roy Jones Jr. So that's still very impressive even when you consider maybe the lulls it, that came in between. Yeah, I, I don't want to slate Kazai too much but you've got an issue where he won a vacant WBO title off Eubank who was over the hill by that point. All acknowledged kind of out of Steve Collins fights he wasn't the same. Um, it was meant and to then, be Collins and then he got injured. Basically. And then you've got... Kazagi then got to 41-0 without really facing the yeah. live one. So that's 20 fights later. He's for Jeff Lacey, who, when you kind of look back, maybe was kind of been a little overbilled at that point. He was kind of treated... A little bit like Butte when he fought Froch, for yeah. example. When he came over, people said he was a killer. He, he was obviously a good fighter, but was he ever that good? Uh, the Mikhail Castor wins a good win. That's a good legitimate win on the record. But then... The, the two the standout ones on his resume are going to be Hopkins and Jones. As much as Bernard obviously ended up going on longer and still successful, he was 43 by the time yeah. Kazakh took him on and it was a close decision that some Jones people kind of split. Worse, and obviously Roy Jones was shot to pieces. If, so the, the, the main argument there is kind of in stark contrast to Murray is that for, for all you had that belt, you didn't take on the best of the best in their prime, whereas that's what Murray was doing. And kind of the thing I alluded to before, whereby, basis. for example, Murray with the Australian Open loss, I think he's got to five finals, I think, and lost to Djokovic and Federer. That's taking on the best and coming short, but testing himself against the best. If he'd come on maybe, in that, there was kind of that gap, wasn't there, between sort of the fall of, say, Sampras and Agassi and the rise of, say, Federer. If he came along in that gap and then cleaned up all the slams, then everyone would be saying, oh, look at the CV, you'd be looking at all the trophies he's got. And it's a little bit like that with Kawasaki, whereby you can you can say you've held this title for X amount of time, but until you defend it against the names, it doesn't really count. Well, that, that's why I'd go for Lennox over He's got more Kawasaki. of a shot. And I think you've got more of a story there with Lennox as well, which does help when you look back at someone's career. I mean, um, world heavyweight champion, two-time lineal champion, undisputed, uh, and then just some of the names. So you go like McCrory, Ruddock, Bruno, McCall, Morrison, Mercer, Briggs, Holyfield, Grant, both are Chua, Tyson, Klitschko, Raman. And then he avenged the losses he had to McCall and Rahman, which I think is good for your legacy in that if you lose, then go back and get those after. I, I think two things with it, though. With, from a boxing point of view, 100% it's great that you go back and avenge your loss. The one It does show that on those two nights, he's lost to inferior opposition. If you look at any Murray Grand Slam loss, it's only ever been to Federer or Djokovic. He's never lost to someone you think who he shouldn't lose to. And as much as you go back and avenge that, it's great in boxing. In tennis, you're going to play people more regularly. Yeah, that's he's, he's never lost to inferior position. He's only he's never kind of lost one he's been the favourite for, for example. Whereas Lennox would have been the overwhelming favourite in those ones. I mean, you've probably had times where Murray hasn't been up to par, but I suppose you also have the uh, option in tennis in that you it's not so much of a thing when you lose because you can always go back the next year. The you're always going to have more cracks in it, yeah, aren't you? The boxer's career is a lot shorter. In that. Yeah, it's, it's just when we get in this like, small minutiae like this, kind of no. not being perfect on the night is kind of part of the thing, isn't it? It's- and, I mean, when you look at most uh, kind of sporting pinnacles, winning 
the heavyweight world championship would be the top of most lists in terms of achievements. So I mean, to be undisputed there, that would be one that, and it's nothing that Murray can do about this, so I, I will concede, but people would probably have being the heavyweight world champion over uh, Wimbledon, Wimbledon honours. Mm, weird certainly say that as boxing fans, but at the same time, if you look at, I don't think Lennox gets more love now than he did at the time. That might be to do with sort of the Canadian link or whatever That's as well. That's why include the Olympics. But, um, so, so that was kind of, he never really got that sort of love. So, and we think of a big fight as getting all the eyes on it. But he only really got the eyes on it after the Tyson fight, which when, by that point, Tyson was over the <laughs> hill as, as kind of widely acknowledged. Whereas Wimbledon, the country is watching. Tennis, I was doing some research on this, supposedly gets about 1.2 billion spectators in a year. So it's it's more mainstream, but I think Murray succeeded in being able to bring that to the masses a little bit more than was kind of more accessible, which yeah, I, I don't think Lennox was really successful in doing Wimbledon with Wimbledon and Murray in Zante. Yeah, it was, it's, it's exactly. It had that sort of cross appeal that I don't think Lennox was ever really able to get. And, and not again, not to dissect his resume too much, but when you yeah. break down the names in there, there's some good names. In terms of the great names, you're looking at Holyfield and Tyson. You get Tyson was over the hill and Holyfield was 37. Aside from Floyd, though, when you break down most people's legacies, they're probably going to have a max of five yeah, great but- names on there. And So when you look at... Um, if you look at the way, I don't know, on here, we're kind of maybe uh, the difference. If you look at the way that AJ's heralded for his victories, then you compare them to the ones that you'd maybe say were less than high profile ones for Lennox mm-hmm. then you would probably say they hold it better I'm not to get into a boxing debate as no, such but in a direct comparison with Murray he whether you like it or not does have elite opposition which well, like I said, with, a, with a boxer is, you can kind of go out and find that for yourself he always had to play the best well, well, this, this, this is what I was going to say so to open up a whole other category of contenders do you write off any team-based athlete in terms of being the greatest or is it that they have to be synonymous with that team's success to be able to... I just think whenever, if you're ever me- measuring someone in a team, you're going to go by what success they've had as a team. You're not going to look at, he's got X amount of bound doors, things like that. You look at what they've won because that's what ultimately means something. And with all of them, it depends wherever you are, you aren't going to have a great, United striker that didn't have a good back four behind him. You aren't going to have someone who didn't didn't have kind of teammates that could carry the load. And it's it's maybe not fair because we could have had some great sportsmen within teams, but you just can't have it when you've got individual sports where people are excelling. Well, yeah, I've got Beckham on my list, (laughs) which I think that I didn't quite give him. I knew he'd obviously been successful, but when you do really look through his list of honours, it is far more impressive than maybe he is given credit for. I mean, just to run through him, six Premier Leagues, two FA Cups, one Champions League, one La Liga, one Supercopa, two MLS Cups, one League One title, Ballon d'Or runner-up, two World Player of the Year servers, three top assist awards. It goes on and on. I could yeah. keep going. I mean, he didn't appear for a team of the century, which takes for what you will, stretch, but I mean, yeah. that's to say that He's the greatest of... He's maybe the perfect case in point though, isn't he? That he only played in great teams when he won those things. Real Madrid and Man United. And in each of them, kind of to take AJ's argument out of his own mouth, that he was never the best player on that team. Whether people like to admit or not, he might have had stretches where he was, but he wasn't ever the best player on those teams. 
I think, like, with the David, David Beckham debate... Crossover appeal. He's obviously got massive appeal. But, yeah, that, that but, was where I was going to go. It's kind of like... How much kind of credence will be given that? I know you were going on about... Uh, last it, week about... He loves a, like a nice story, AJ. Yeah, but, it's, it's kind of like what... How are we just going to, for the best sportsman of all time, are we literally just going to look at it as an athletical ability and achievement, or are we actually going to look at them as a character as well? I mean, we're not really sure. I think that, I think it is quite important to the British people, as which is why, which is why you might throw Beckham into that, because when you, as you've said before, I'm pretty sure that if you were to name somebody, if you've got somebody who was no, not interested in sport at all, and had no like just no my missus for example has no idea um <laughs> if you she could name david beckham that would be the first name yeah. that comes into head and i think that's quite a nat- when it's quite a natural instinct it's quite a raw and truthful thing that he's the face that we associate and it's also as well it it goes it goes on past when their sport actual sporting career has ended in terms of what they've gone to do on after the sport as well because you could argue that um I mean, David Beckham has done a lot in terms of um, in the sporting world afterwards, in terms of trying to bring the World Cup home. Um, he's been flying the flag Both. as he's been flying the flag of Britain past his sporting career finishing, which I think is still quite an important thing as well. Yeah, but when you look at sports, most high profile sports stars do things for charity, etc. So you kind of when you get into that sort of phase, you're not really measuring it on kind of athletic achievement anymore. And I think even even if you did want to go, if you wanted to go with that. Murray's been quite a champion for like women's rights, for example. He's often spoke out about sexism in sport. Uh, he was the first male co- male player to have a female coach, which is pretty unprecedented for someone in the, the top uh, sort of top ten. It'd be seen as almost taboo to be doing that. So, and the thing we talked about with popularity as well, the thing that kind of surprises you is he won- he has won sports personality three times, which is the m- more than anyone. So, as much as we say about how Wiggins was loved, Beckham was loved, he's ended up winning it more than these characters who you'd think. In our mind, are more popular. <laughs> a good way, good way to to go on this debate, I suppose, would be is who's who's the most likely out of these few people to lead our country one day? Since that seems to be the way that things are going in the world at the moment. I mean, <laughs> I can't see Andy Murray as prime minister at all, but I could see David Beckham as prime well, minister. One when day. Scotland gets its independence, he'll be able to leave them, and he'll be <laughs> doing his best William Wallace impression. I'm sure. All right, AJ. Before we close this one out, I'm sure you've got a few more. Olympians or anything. This is this is this is what I was expecting you to bring the heat with. Are you going to give us the details on Redgrave or anything along those lines, or are you writing them all off as cheats? Skip. I think we need to skip to the end because I have a confession. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> I don't like the sound of this. Um, do you want to give us that first, and then we'll ask TK? Well, it's going to relate to has he changed my I'll, mind? I'll, I'll just give you a sort of a, a finish here, just to yeah, just finish, just finish off. Just so finish. I, I do think as well. We mentioned Olympians. Uh, Murray's own two Olympic gold medals is the only male singles player to have won two Olympic golds. So that's kind of not even the sort of the the pinnacle of your attainment in tennis, and he's still done that, which is most of the Olympians are kind of one, two, maybe more than that gold medals, but that's sort of the pinnacle for them. He's done that as well as other achievements. Um, and I do think the main the main angle is the fact that he competed with the best, not only the best of his current era, but probably the best ever. And I think it'd be like if we had, say, the, only, the best comparison I can make would be like if the England football team had been competitive with the great Germany teams, Italian teams, Brazilian teams, all at the same time, for example. They, if they not have been the fourth best in the world, but if they were genuinely competing with them, then I think we'd be comfortably saying that that's the best team we've seen. 
that's sort of the best sort of, um, parallel I can draw. And, and I do think the Wimbledon was sort of the hoodoo that was hanging over it. As much as we said it was fast and laughed at, the pressure that he was under each year was immense. And I don't think anyone's going to be able to replicate that because, well, hopefully you don't go 77 years again without <laughs> winning it. And I think the only real pressure you could make a comparison to that would be a team sport, would be like the England football team. It's the only time you get the eyes of the nation quite on something like that. And even then it's split amongst 11 players on the pitch. I, I just think he's sort of dealt with a set of circumstances that, not necessarily through his own making, but he's brought himself into that and dealt with a set of circumstances that I don't think we've had to see another athlete contend with. Sports like rowing and cycling have typically been our more successful ones and they don't get maybe 10% of the eyes on it that say like Wimbledon would. Me, me personally, I, I give a bit more to the, the team-based sports in that I'll give them credit if you can have a standout player and so... I would give credit to Beckham. I would give. I would give credit. I would give credit to Bale in that circumstance. In that he has the honours. I'm not saying he's the greatest, but to, to I'm have probably giving it Rooney over Beckham if his, it's footballers. Well, I, when I was looking through the honours, I, I took Beckham in terms. He but got, if the other thing, Rooney's got plenty of honours himself, and as an individual, does have records, goal scorer for England, Man United, record appearance makings for England. So, what if we go for Rooney? Have we changed your mind? No, 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 but I'm saying if, <laughs> if you were to go by footballers, I don't no, think I Beckham you. would be my number one choice was guess no, my point. Um, I was going to say, just with team-based sports, uh, I, I, would, I give a bit more credit to it if you can be the standout guy, and I'm, I'm not saying that for anyone in particular. I, I do think if we were ever going to have someone from a team-based sport be our greatest ever sportsman, you would have to do something crazy like Ronaldo or Messi. Alex isn't going for Kane. Where, whereby you're comfortably the best in the world and you're shattering records year after year. They've been doing it for so long. That would be the only way I could see us giving it to someone from a team background. I'm going to stick with uh, Wuznam on a technicality <laughs> in terms of uh, the overall broadness of the question. I do definitely think Murray deserves to be in the conversation. I think it would be interesting to revisit it in, say, six months' time. Yeah. when Because when he retires, you're probably going to get this all again. So If he does make it to Wimbledon, the obituary is going to be probably borderline ridiculous, aren't yeah. they? Because it's going to get a bit sentimental. So that, but... that's, that's what I'm thinking of. I don't want. I, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not going to be these people who are writing him off, saying, "Well, he's absolutely hopeless. We're just overhyping him because he's British." On the other hand, I think the reflecting will be done soon after because I think if you look at the likes of what was said about probably Beckham when he retired, and you hmm. look at the the way that most of these were spoken about immediately after they announced their retirement, it'd be similar. But uh, I'm going to say he's not quite there, but he's certainly there. There's an argument to be made. Uh, has your mind changed? My mind hasn't changed, I've got to be honest. Uh, what? No, it, I think you might have changed Alex's mind. By the way. <laughs> Look at so my confession. So initially when, when I was given the brief that this was going to be the question, I immediately pounced on it thinking, oh my God, I'm rubbing my hands together here. I've got so much to say on I've this. I've gathered you were outraged. Yeah. Um, and do you know what? I had a really good plan of attack. I had so many counters planned right up until around about this afternoon when I actually thought, well, I'm criticising Andy Murray, but I haven't actually come up with anybody who's potentially better. <laughs> and I've like, I've, I've got like, I, I had like a few in my head and then when I've actually looked at them and I've gone to their achievements, I'm thinking, do you know what? I actually prefer Andy Murray for one of these a lot. <laughs> and do you know what? Do you know what? My brother saw the moment that this happened in my head. Um, when it, when it, when you start to throw in things like the Davis Cup, which I think get, we we've spoken about Wimbledon a lot, but I think the Davis Cup was quite yeah. a crucial thing that swayed me. 
Yeah. And I almost forgot about that. I, I, you tend to think about Wimbledon more than, um, more than you do the gold medals. But remembering watching those gold medals when they came in was pretty spectacular. And when you look, when I thought about it at a raw level, and I was looking at the other people that I compared, was trying to put him against. My highest moments of enjoyment watching have all come from watching Andy Murray. That's, that's it. The other thing Luke often speaks about the moments, and he's given us plenty of those, hasn't he? And well, I can see now I was facing a losing battle from the start. <laughs> text him, hang on, text him the question last week. He's gone. He hasn't. He hasn't actually come with it. In, in Alex's defence, it is one of those where when you say it, you think no, no, it can't be, what, and you'll, what, you'll think of people in your head, and then you think when you break it down. Well, no, 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 because I'll give him that until I text him earlier. <laughs> And he's, and he's text me back, so I know what his defence will be, and I've got a brilliant counter. <laughs> I'm still waiting for it. My this counter, is, this my is like Floyd and Pacquiao. Everyone's went, waiting for it, but it hasn't happened. My 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 counter was going to come gonna in. Land I, it I was in expecting him to bring up about him like being at a time when there were other best players in the world, um, like they, they were like the standard that he has has had to compete against. And I I I had. In my head, like I don't like that our best ever sportsman of all time wasn't the best in the world at his given time. I don't like that, and it's still hard for me but to that's, accept. That's, but more that's just accepting that. our limitations as as a yeah. country that we're not going to have the best. Yeah, if we had Linford Christie beating Usain Bolt in 100 meters, then he's comfortably yeah. going to win it. But yeah. as it is, we didn't have anyone competing with that. I thought I thought like the fire of debate might ignite me, and I might <laughs> find the truth that I was looking for in the argument, but it never came. I it never bludgeoned came. him into a corner. My heart wasn't in it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, next week, I'm going to be on my own. So I might, I was, well, I was on my own this week, but I'll be on my own again. <laughs> Maybe it I was can't. just the thought of you being on the same side. It just didn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> well, next week, uh, I'm going to uh, be making my case for, essentially, to put it nicely, Shearer and Letizia through the, uh, their careers down the toilet by not moving to a bigger club when they had the opportunity to and how you should be maximising every last bit of your potential. We'll get us a week's that. notice. I like it. Yeah, we'll get into that. Um, we've got Townsend on next week, so that'll be another person uh, on the opposing side. But I think I'm up to the task. If needs to be, I'll clutch the mic and not let someone else get on. And uh, hopefully, Alex will just write write points for my side as well. So <laughs> we'll get into it. It's that time of the year again, post Christmas. Into the transfer gossip, you can usually uh, disregard anything between uh, the window closing and the window reopening. But as soon as it's reopened, take everything you see seriously. <laughs> Every player linked with your club, get excited about and uh, convince yourself that each club's going to spend more money than your own. So if we go straight into it on that note, the first piece of gossip today, uh, all taken from uh, BBC Sports and uh, we'll, we'll credit the individual papers for their nonsense, I'm sure. So the star, to kick us off, uh, quoted as saying, Bournemouth are willing to sell England striker Callum Wilson to Chelsea for £75 million, 25 times the amount they paid for the 26-year-old in 2014. Now there's another piece of gossip which is underneath saying that Chelsea are only willing to pay up to £50 million. <laughs> As if we got, we're biting their hand off here, we got a bargain. It shows you the way the prices have gone, doesn't it? That, that would be the... I could see it. This would be a very Chelsea sort of signing. I think they need a striker. Spunk the money on him. Well, I saw uh, there was an article that was released today saying that um, Liverpool need to take a long, hard look at themselves because they've ruined the transfer window by the way, by the amount they sold Solanke for. (laughs) 
they're saying that um, the Liverpool uh, directors or whoever uh, greenlighted it essentially didn't think of the bigger picture, the way it was going to affect themselves and everyone else. <laughs> and that they, I think they used the word, I'm trying to think of the exact word they used. I can't think of that word. They, they essentially said they like disrespected the rest of the league in, in, in going through with this. Have a word with Bournemouth. <laughs> They're the ones who need their head tested, not us. <laughs> Bite your hand off for it. <laughs> well, sticking with Bournemouth, actually. So the next piece of gossip is uh, from The Sun. And it says Chelsea, and this is the most Chelsea thing ever. Chelsea also want to re-sign Bournemouth defender Nathan Ake just two years after selling <laughs> the 23-year-old Dutch centre-back to the Cherries. I mean, they did it with Matic. There's, uh, there's other examples. David Luiz. Yeah. So, they're, they're no strangers to it. They were in for Lukaku. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But that would not surprise me at all. They got Christensen on the bench. <laughs> but, yeah, going for Nathan Ake and spending probably about 30 million on him. <laughs> I don't really understand that, like, that signing. I don't think it makes any sense for them in terms of, I mean... They're probably looking at David Luiz's what thirty two. Well, the thing is, they're looking. That defense is obviously very questionable at the moment, and it's so easy to leak goals. Um, and their position in the league is proof of that. Um, I think what they need is somebody who's solid and proven, not somebody that's essentially young and up, young and upcoming and promising. And probably you got to look if if he's that upcoming and young and promising. Why did they get rid of him in the first place? I mean, it is classic Chelsea to yeah, that with Kevin De Bruyne and stuff like that. But it's. I think there may be better options that they could go and look for in just in terms of it. It doesn't have to be a long-term solution defender. It could literally. They've got the money to be able to spend on a, just a proven defender currently, who's maybe only got like another year or two left. Um, I mean, you know, to be brutally honest, Alderweireld. I mean, it's like they could literally sign him. They've got the capability, and we would probably take the money in the we situation. We'd have to see got a release clause. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's it's signings like that that just don't make any sense. Well, if we stick with you here, Alex, um, the Mail reporting Tottenham's new stadium will not be finished this season. What you t- telling telling me? What I already know. <laughs> I tell you, we, we need to have a look at these uh, Jones brothers because Alex uh, is knowing about the Spurs stadium. His brother's telling us who the new James Bond is going to be. <laughs> I want to know who their sources are. We've got many a contact. Many a contact. Uh, but I'll tell you what, that James Bond source is pretty solid. Pretty, on, pretty solid. Share the... Do I, am I going to share it? You can sh- give us a scoop. Who's the new James Bond? No, 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 I'll tell no. you what. No, 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 no. Because no, he, he really wants to come on the podcast. And I'll tell you what, we'll get him on and we'll save it for him. It can be his scoop. But we're running out of time because I reckon it's going to be announced relatively soon. Well, we've got Townsend next week. We've got a free space the week after. So right. He's got we? no excuses because he's saying he's want to come on. So he's got to make it happen if he gets the offer, if he gets the call up. Let's make it your, be back on your week for Change My Mind as well. <laughs> so <laughs> relish <Wait>. that. <laughs> okay, continuing on from there. Sticking with Spurs. Um, Spurs and Spain striker Fernando Llorente, 33, is a target for Barcelona. Do you know what? My, 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 from Mundo Deportivo. My, uh... <laughs> what? That's the paper in Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, they, my colleague told me about this today. Um, but, hey, made Barcelona. Have you, they, Barcelona know what Liverpool clearly don't. You need a big man up top to change well, the game. Their manager was also um, very complimentary towards Morata also this week saying uh, there would there could certainly be a space in their squad for him. 
Well, the, th- the thing is, uh, so obviously he got that he got the hat trick recently. I'm I'm really hoping that gives him a spark of confidence to try and get some goals for us because we're gonna desperately bloody need it now that Kane's injured and Sun's disappearing off to Asia. Um, I mean, to be brutally honest, if that actually had any anything behind it, I think Spurs should bite Barcelona's hand off because I can't see it being anything over ten million if that. Um, Hang on, they pay 30 for Paulinho, so you can watch. <laughs> well, we'll see, we'll see. But I mean, like, to be brutally honest, I mean, it looks like Dembele's gone uh, to China for like 8 million or so, which is a great decision because I think his legs are just gone and he hasn't really played at all this season. And if we manage to get Lorente, I mean, 20 million don't get you a lot at the moment in terms of high quality, but it might just get yeah, us a temporary... It might, 20 million might just get us a, a temporary stop hold to make us survive without potentially Kane because I reckon he could be out for at least a few weeks. By Imagine the, the, those Barca fans yelling, Messi, it's just not that kind of game today. Get him off. We want Morata and Lorente on up top for Messi and Suarez. Close the game out. PK, lump it up to the big <laughs> lad. What are you doing? Playing around with it. I want the comeback for Chris Samba because that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't utilised enough. Bring him back, get him up top. We were linked with him for about ten years. I actually was quite warming to it by the end of it. Him and Breda Hangerland, you were just linked with incessantly. It never happened. Hangerland used to ruin our lives yeah, every exactly. time we played him. I think that's part yeah. of why. Um, continuing on from there, then. So uh, we might blame this one on Liverpool or not. Manchester City boss Pep Guardiola says the club would not meet the reported 100 million valuation for Wolves and Portugal midfielder Ruben Neves. <laughs> <laughs> and that's from the mirror. And I think that's disgraceful, really, because, I mean, you've got Gundogan in there, you've got De Bruyne, you've got Silva, you've got Fernandinho, but Ruben Neves is the one who will probably take that to the next level. <laughs> 100 million pounds. Did you see him during that... Uh, the commentary during the Wolves Liverpool game, where they made out he's the most clinical scorer in the world, and I think it, who I can't, I'm not sure entirely sure the pundit was, but he was essentially saying, "Look, if you give him that kind of space, he's always going to score." And they popped up at the bottom. Eight of his nine goals have been from outside the area. So, it's like, so those eight times, <laughs> you could have closed him down, but his career goals of nine. <laughs> Just every one he scores, just a belter when he does it. Because <laughs> that one he scored in the championship is one of the best goals I've ever seen. It's just exotic Bullard, isn't he? That's all it is. Ping a ball every now and again. Yeah, I'm sick of Bullard as well. I saw it on here before. Just don't find him funny anymore. He became a caricature himself. Yeah. Soccer AM killed him. Yeah. It's not been a fall from grace like Soccer AM. And he killed Soccer AM. <laughs> yep. Alright, continuing on from there then. Watford's French... Well, this says Watford's French striker on uh, BBC Sports. <laughs> Watford's French striker, Abdoulaye Decoré, 26, has told a French TV station he is going to leave the Hornets. And that's via the Express. I'd take him. I'd take him for us. He's a, he's a, he's a less glamorous Xhaka. <laughs> I think he's more effective than Xhaka. I think well, he's yeah. been uh, disrespectful to him, though. Swap deal. Yeah, they wouldn't take it. <laughs> Alright, moving on from there. West Ham captain Mark Noble can understand why 29-year-old Austria forward Marco Arnautovic wants to leave the Hammers for China because, and he quotes, the money is a different kettle of fish. <laughs> and I like that they've quoted him directly there as well. <laughs> Arnautovic uh, is it, it, shameful. The the yeah. way his brother, it's his brother, isn't it, that's yeah. come out and literally like, look, he wants to go. You can't turn these kind of opportunities down. 
And I said to Statman Steve when I spoke to him this week, look, they did the exact same thing to get him to leave Stoke for West Ham. You should have seen this coming and you can't be upset now. Is he upset? Um, I think the the consensus I've seen from West Ham fans is, look, we've dealt with enough over the years. Hyatt was probably the most painful one to remind us what really happens at West Ham. So, yeah, this this one isn't quite the same, but when you look at their other options of Antonio and Andy Carroll, then maybe they'll be a bit more upset if they don't reinvest. I think their pain is eased by the fact that not only is he getting paid a fortune, they're being paid £45 million for the for the sake of it, I believe, which is not bad money for a guy who's going to turn 30 soon. How much uh, would you have to be bought out of your job for, Alex, to move to China? What? No, how much, what, how much wages are they going to have to give you in China for you to move? To move to China? Yeah. From my job? They say, look, they say, look you're the freshest engineer on the block. We want to pump some money into you. How much are we going to have to pay you a year to move to China? Probably not that much. Like, no, it, like, you know, if it means I can still do all of my sport and passions and stuff like that, I mean, they don't. You don't have many uh, triathletes in China. You'd be surprised. Well, actually, you, you're wrong. The, the Asian market for Ironman is greatly expanding. Well, then, it's not so what you're waiting for. I'd be spending a lot of my wages on coming back over and doing the races that I wanted to. Uh, I don't know. It's difficult. I Give suppose. us a figure. We might I don't have a Chinese think, China, China appeals to a lot of people um, in like just as like a nice, like a potential exotic place to go and live. Lots of exciting things. But do you know what? I think I'd stay true to staying home. It'd be have to be a bloody yeah, lot of money. Like. It'd have to be. It'd have to be so much that I could buy myself out of the contract that I'd signed um, comfortably, <laughs> and also well, think, think fly. Like pretty much, pretty much, I could pretty much go and work out there. Can you not just mm. hand the resignation in? Anatovic is probably getting treble what he's going to be getting. If you were offered treble the money you're on, would you go? Yeah. Send, <laughs> send that to send that to his employer. He's got no loyalty. He's only just started there. Nothing about him. I'll tell you what. He keeps well, surely the fact that I've only just started. Loyalty to the firm. Well, the, my loyalty, my full loyalty hasn't been built yet because I've been there that long. Oh, so it's, the, so it's just... the relationship is new. I don't, you know. It's, you They've taken a chance it. on a humble barista to make him an engineer. <laughs> And you're gonna stab him in the back. It says a lot. It says a lot. Look out for Team Passion Fit. Because if Team Sky come along, he'll be off. I'll tell you what, if he keeps leaking these sources, he might have to escape to China. <laughs> He's gonna have to dial us up quick, boys. I don't know how much you've got in savings. You're gonna have to get me a flight. Not in my name. I can't use my cards. <laughs> They're after me. I've revealed who James Bond is. They said, All right, you can get away with a Spurs stadium, but this is too much. So We'll wait for that Chinese offer to to come through. And just finally, uh, to take it down a tone, uh, we know Alex is worth. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has spoken to BBC Sport and said that David De Gea can be Man United's greatest ever keeper. Bearing in mind we were talking about um, Schmeichel as one of the best ever Premier League players last week. Buy anything into that? Do you read anything? Uh... I I think he has got something there, but I would say you can't. That's going to be a no based on what we've seen up until now. I think that's he's saying by him saying he can become what has to happen from now and then over the next say next next ten years has to be quite dramatic. Um, and I think then it even strengthens his argument. In, it strengthens his argument even more in respect of what he what he had to go through and survive a horrible transition phase to United, 
and if they do on to go and succeed in the next 10 years in the same way that Schmeichel's team did, um, then yes, potentially, did, yes. Did you watch yesterday? I did, yes. Um, now, this is going to be for the kind of the debate which most people have been having online. Do you think De Gea's performance was over-exaggerated? Because uh, I'll tell you, Sean was not happy. He said they're all strays at him. They've gone way over the top. I won't use the exact phrase that he used. I think the way that I look at it is, um, yes, it has been over-exaggerated. Um, but contradictory to that, there were some excellent saves in there. And the ones that, yes, were straight at him are now... It, it, it gives fuel to the fire of degrading the ones that were pretty good. I mean, I I feel like he was the difference in that match. Um, I, I, I really, I think he was the difference, but some the way that some people are talking about him, I it's not that good. But then again, just it's going from one extreme to the other, I think. He's, and it, it, he was, he, not to, he, he was somewhere in the middle, maybe swaying a bit more to the uh, great performance, but <sighs> there's people here that are sitting completely you know going off the ball that they're like slamming immediately like there were a lot straight at him but is is he the best keeper in the world even the best keeper in the league at the moment. that was the next question this is a podcast they can't see you uh, <laughs> it's difficult because so obviously uh, up until say the last two three years, you would have gone straight away with uh, Neuer. Um, He's fallen uh, off a cliff, and he has. Um, arguably, you could technically throw Buffon alongside Neuer as well. Um, but recently, you can't deny. I know we've talked about before, and obviously, what he's done in recent in recent um, months, let's say this year, is um, Hugo Lloris is a World Cup winner. I don't know. But he's not the best in the world, and but I have heard people say that he is. Yeah, well, um, we don't talk about him on this podcast. I don't. I don't <laughs> think Edison can be counted as the best Premier League keeper. Um, I think. Uh, Allison. Allison, I think has been, been overhyped. overhyped he? he has been overhyped. He has been overhyped. I think if you take away the transfer fee. And you take away the momentum that Liverpool have. I think he has been overhyped a little bit. Uh, no, let's say a little bit, quite a bit. Well, if you take away the clean sheets Liverpool have had, obviously he's been overhyped. The fact he's in a winning team is obviously an awful thing. The high transfer price, which means you actually get measured more harshly, has meant is it led to the overhype. If you were to base it on this season alone, for example, Alisson has had a better season than De Gea. Am I therefore saying he's a better keeper than De Gea? No, because you've got to go on years of achievement in which case the hair is better and on that basis may still be the best keeper in the league uh, in the world sorry right who, who do oh. you have as the best keeper in the world right now at uh, you two out of curiosity to Stegen sorry to Stegen okay it doesn't get the love he deserves yeah uh, the only thing I'll say is I thought he had a good game against Spurs I thought it wasn't quite as good as some have said but it wasn't as shocking as Sean was making out there were some good saves in there um but that's not one good game does not a good season make, as someone once said. And he hasn't had a he's had a patchy form so far this season. Not quite as bad as some said, but he hasn't been on his usual high. 
this was kind of back to where we used to. Let's see if he carries it on. Well, yeah, because he, he's been critiqued for saving a little bit of his feet. Maybe if Spurs didn't shoot at his feet every single time, <laughs> he might have saved them with his hands. What you've got to remember as well is it's like it's good enough saying, oh, it was straight at him, but his placement in the first place has still got to be right. He's got to be in the right area of the goal. Um, he's got to he's got to read where the game's going to get to that position you, in the first place. You have to look some, some into it as well because a lot of those Kane tucks away without even having a second thought. And I think it does read something into the fact that you know it's him in goal. And you may second guess yourself when you see it because for someone who isn't the biggest keeper in in the world, he certainly has a presence in the net that you can see when players go through. You get that feeling with some keepers when you see a striker charging through where you give them a lot more of a chance than you would give some. And a lot of the time you can even bat the keeper and he does have that. And something to his credit, if you take away the goal that he conceded against Arsenal, which they then went on to draw the game anyway, he does often show up in the big games more often than not. And that's probably what you you judge the best players on the big moments. I mean, if, if you were judging it on the smaller games, you could have Ursula as the best player in the league if you judged it on the, the lower you half games. But... <laughs> Well, I mean, if if, if it's <laughs> <laughs> not anymore, but we'll switch now from keepers to attacks, and uh, we'll st- we'll keep on with Liverpool because Alex has a little glint in his eye when you mentioned them today. He's got his mojo back after uh, not having my back earlier, um, and th- there's been a lot spoken about with Liverpool's front three this season. And now I'm not going to say that there's people clamouring and saying that they are the best ever Premier League attack, but I think we do a lot of things with we're doing an eleven. And if we kind of look at an attack as a unit and we kind of say which team in the Premier League, we in Premier League history, not in, or we'd be down to two teams this year, which one we think is the best. And I don't know how you two would have it. So for me, in terms of breaking it down, for the later years, I've got it as a front three. But yeah, in the years when it was a 4-4-2 formation, then I've taken the two wide midfielders and the two strikers to make up your, your front line kind of oh, thing. Okay. Right. Um, I didn't go down that line. I only count in the in the four four two days. I only count the two strikers. You can look into how how if that's like yeah. we'll each give our kind of judgment rather yeah. than uh, convince each other. But I've I've got kind of a list of um, the Premier League's consensus greatest teams, and then I've got the attacks with them. And so if we kind of go through those, and then we if anyone has any other wild cards to chuck in, then we can go through that. So. Um, if we start with Saleh, Salah, Mane and Firmino, is anyone at this point going to call them the greatest Premier League attack ever? I think, I'm not going to call them that, but I'll mention two things. You touched on the having like free in attack. I think as a free, they might be the most effective of all the people we're going to name. A lot of the time, formations weren't quite like they are now. It's generally, teams are going to play with a front three of sorts, the top teams. Um, and I think... As a unit, they might actually work as a three better than anyone we're going to bring up. I don't because I don't think any of the three are necessarily as an individual better than a lot of these players we're going to name. But as a unit collectively, and certainly for the way the team plays, I think they might actually be the most effective use. I've got a three which I'll get onto, which I'd take above them, but that may be for nostalgic purposes. And, and so, I bet they're probably better individual players. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so. um, if we start with. Um, 97-98, then you've got a front four as such of um, Overmars, Burkamp, Wright and Parler. And I would say this team was more 
marvelled for their all-over dimensions on the pitch. It just so happened that you had Wright and Burkamp up front who didn't work poorly together, but they they didn't have a, like a telepathic kind of thing between them. So I would straight away say they're not going to be the best one on our list, but they're certainly one when you look at the, the figures and the effectiveness for those four, then that's certainly one that you would consider. Um, moving past them then, so this was, um, I'm just going through the order they were on there. This list, you've got one which most people don't often put into the mix until you kind of remember looking back on them. And that's a Maluda, Drogba and Anelka uh, from the 09-10 season. And they scored, um, uh, that attack um, scored 103 goals uh, in total just with those three. And I mean, you look, you look at uh, Drogba is the only exceptional player of those three. Anelka was certainly no scrub but he was no he wasn't here in his finest form it was more the link up that he had with the two and he he didn't lose his uh, clinical abilities which I wasn't on the last game of the season when they could ease they just had to win and they didn't they put like six or seven past well, uh, was that this season that Didier Drogba was chasing, chasing the golden boot, though, when he like smashed it? He had it a bout of a season. That was it, yeah. He got um, the, the lion's share of goals, yeah. I, I think I think it, it says something, because I was thinking about Chelsea, and I was thinking there must be, like, you're trying to think of that, because the amount of signings that they've had and the players that they've brought in, um, and, you know, you throw in names like, there was, you know, Drogba and Shevchenko, arguably the two best strikers in the world at one time, had lined up alongside each other. But I had that that three that you said, Maluda and Elke Drogba. Yeah. I had that as my best, my my most the Chelsea with the most force with the most veracity. Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, I think Drogba alone really makes that three stand out, um, and having that focal point of just goals is where my strike force. Ask, ask me if I'm shocked ages purring over Chelsea again. <laughs> yeah, I, I did a similar thing to you when I did a bit of research into this and I saw the amount of goals Chelsea scored that year. You, you tend to think of the good Chelsea teams that have been strong defensively with good attackers. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, second highest scoring ever. I think it highlighted something I said at the time about how harsh it was that he sacked Ancelotti a year later. They did the double that year, obviously broke some records there and... Uh, he ends up getting a sack. I think one thing a little bit misleading with that, though, we've touched on that. Lampard got 20-plus goals that season. So if you're going to include him as part of the attack or not. Um, I was also looking, because I was looking at, I saw how many goals Drogba scored. I saw that now had a few. So I was thinking, where else did the goals come from? We forgot what a good season Maluda had. Also, Kalu got something like 15, 16 goals that season, which, no disrespect to him, but I watched him play at her for Berlin earlier this year, and it didn't look like he could at cow's ass with a shovel. So... <laughs> he's he's been playing for that Arsenal move for about ten years. <laughs> he, I mean, we've just gone through the BBC gossip. Then, do you reckon players see their own name pop up and they're like, "Hey, my agent hasn't told me about this just just yet." Kalu must every year must have just been waiting that any second now. I'm going to get a call from my agent. We said as well, didn't we? Kalu and Arsenal would just be such a seeming like match made in heaven. A player that's quite good but really not that great and quite kind of erratic and inconsistent going to Arsenal just seems perfect. Sorry, I was I was going to say this with um, when we were talking about Callum Wilson earlier, just to go back, and it's not meant as an insult to Spurs, but we've seen a lot through the years of the players where you see them shine in uh, a lesser team in the Premier League, and other clubs kind of turn their nose up at them as in the kind of the big fish in a in a small pond. And Spurs have had quite a lot of success when you look down the road with them. I mean, Dembele was a clear one who. 
there's supposedly uh, Spurs and United were fighting between them with his time at Fulham. But then you just you just look at some of the other ones, and Callum Wilson is probably one of those ones that you can take a chance on because I mean, in the league, fast and and scoring goals is is something you can't really go wrong with, as particularly with their uh, with their attack. And I mean, just just the likes of I know some of them weren't the most successful, but like Sigurdsson, and they they for a while Spurs were signing kind of the top dog at the lesser clubs and just making a squad's worth out of them so I mean it's worth other teams doing it because every every now and then I mean you weren't always paying 50 million for them so you were getting them for what they were worth so it might be a bit different now you say we've been doing quite well with those sort of signings we've also done terrible with those sort of signings as well uh, exhibit A Sissoko um, you could think so, of Sissoko's been having maybe we, his best we, season we went it? on a spree of buying a number of Brits in that respect as well so it, it's, it's yeah we, Sean has turned his back on Trippier has he now he has to be fair, from the start of the season, he was pretty much consistent with that. Though. It's not like he's only suddenly mm. gave the ball away in a bad position against United as no, well. No, Trippier uh, has not had a good season. No, he hasn't. He has not. That World Cup hangovers hit him hard like the rest has of the country. Indeed. I think he's right. I, I'd argue it's unpatriotic to have started the season with his back turned to Trippier if that's the case. Some Spurs fans weren't huge fans of him going into the World Cup. Well, this, uh, Alec- the World Cup forms kind of disguise that a little bit. Uh, this 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 is one for you a suggestion we had earlier for um, a future episode to uh, sit a, as a podcast and literally just re-watch the games of the World Cup and just relive them with I'd literally like, like a watch I'd like to do that <laughs> that'd be awesome um, uh, go on uh, stri- so back onto the strikers yeah. so we haven't spoke about any of the United boys yet we'll get onto them we got the teams to go through oh, okay okay but they are literally ne- they're a couple down the list if we stick with Chelsea next just to say the opposing uh, Chelsea lineup. so that was a, kind of a front four in that you had uh, Damien Duff Drogba Johnson and uh, Iron Robin who was looking old then <laughs> he's reaching retirement <laughs> at the end of this season and something I would say, and it's maybe the way that uh, the winger role has changed, in Damien Duff was the winger then that was no real thrills. It was direct and solely there as a provider. If if he chipped in with a goal, then obviously it was perfect. But he was he was different to the likes of Joe Cole you could put out there for Chelsea and then going on from there, Maluda and so on. Um, the, I said the closest thing I can think of in the league now to uh, Damien Duff, and I literally just came to me on the bus, so don't uh, shoot me down, um, was Ryan Fraser for Bournemouth in the way that he's chipping in with the goals, but it's, it's a no-thrills kind of winger who you're putting out there as a provider just to whip the ball in, do his job defensively as much as offensively. And not like we say with a lot of the front lines now where we say that um, I forgot the term that we use for um, Ertzel, where they, they can afford to be carried by the rest of the team. Luxury? Yeah, luxury, yeah. So he, so we get a lot of the wingers now where you're not expecting, say, Martial, if you look at United, the difference between Martial and Rashford seems to be that Rashford's going to put in a shift for you getting back if he's on the wing, and whereas uh, Martial isn't. And you look at, say, the likes of Damien Duff, and he was far more refined in that role in that he's going to do you both ends of the pitch. And that's what you had at 11 aside, wasn't it? If you were shift when you were younger, if you were shifted on uh, right mid, I remember having played there myself, <laughs> believe it or not. You were always told you just got to be getting back, right back up and down the pitch as much as a centre midfielder was. So that one maybe wouldn't be as effective in terms of the best attack. But if you were choosing one for your team, then perhaps you would go for the four of them because... 
the four of them on paper is a lot more glamorous than Maluda, Drogba and Elka. Mm-hmm. Having Good Johnson, Drogba and uh, Robin in there. I was going to say, have we mentioned Robin? Yeah, or? yeah, he's he's in. He was in that midfield yeah, um, yeah, yeah. four. That was uh, two thousand and four, two thousand and five. To show um, two things really: one that Damien Duff was a bit underrated, but also how much the winger role has changed. That there was a genuine debate when they were at Chelsea as to whether um, who should start between Duff and Robin because well, we've got two left footers here. We can't have them both, rather than obviously. Robin since made a career out of playing on the right and cutting in on the left, but at the time it was a genuine debate that people kind of forget. Joe Cole, yeah, he was—he just wasn't shifted out in that particular team. But certainly, uh, I mean, if you speak to a lot of Chelsea players, he goes down as maybe their favourite ever. I mean, some over Lampard, which I think is a disgrace. But <laughs> oh, yes, my my brother had a Newcastle shirt with Duff on the back. Uh, <laughs> if if you want to go all the way back, he was shot. Man. Yeah. He was shot. <laughs> Uh, continuing on from there, so Alex, like Alex said, to get to uh, United, and so the 2007-2008 team of uh, Rooney, Ronaldo, Tevez as a front three is one of the best front threes, and it, uh, aside from an Arsenal one, which is always going to be at the forefront of my mind, if I had to eliminate picking an Arsenal side, that would be my go-to best front three I've seen in the league with how direct the three of them were with uh, Ronaldo, who scored um, 42 goals that season. Um, that was 2007-2008. We had them in the Champions League semi-final. And through the years, I've seen Arsenal get cut open by a lot of teams. But I've never seen them get cut open like they did by those three in the Champions League. There was the Sky advert, if you remember. The yeah, where they made them invisible and you saw the ball just pinging, literally like a pinball machine, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, that that was ridiculous. And you think that you then had Berbatov to come into that side to oh, fit him. Yeah, to fit him with those. You had it like just on the cusp of in that as well. You had uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy at the end of his time at one point as well as those two were transitioning in. Yeah, that so, was, but that was probably what a three. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those, those two, I mean, 42 goals for Ronaldo and then you've got Rooney who missed 15 games that season and still chipped in with 18 goals. And then uh, Tevez had 19 himself. So that front line there is unbelievable. Yeah, they were maybe the first sort of go-to, I thought, in terms of when you're looking for the best. I think they do fall into the category of, if you were to take a three and then name it individually as players, I think they'd have to be probably the best three. I think you can always find a weak link, not weak link, but not quite on the same level in most. Uh, I did look at the... So, so when you look at the the oh seven oh eight season, they got eighty league goals, which is obviously a very good haul, but not when you consider then like Chelsea had that hundred and three, City I'm sure will come on to broke the hundred mark. It seems strange that they didn't. And then the following season, oh eight oh nine, when Berbatov got in on the act as well, you think that's a crazy four. They only got sixty eight league goals. So people forget a little time Tevez was benched in favour of Berbatov, which is a bit controversial because Berbatov wasn't quite doing it in his first season. But they were yeah, so sixty eight goals had him joint with Arsenal, Chelsea and City that season. And the people, the only ones who scored more of them were actually Liverpool with a partnership we probably won't talk about, which was Torres with Gerrard playing just often. Liverpool actually got more goals than them that season, which again was surprising because they were the only two who were really doing the business for Liverpool at that point. I, th- I think a lot of it boils down to the nature of how those teams won their titles. I mean, Alex Ferguson in particular was obviously, and, and Mourinho is another example of this, is why we haven't really named two, I mean, they won. They had a lot of scrappy games. 
um, where you they just park yeah. at the best or just get a last minute equaliser and then win. And they could share goals around, but not because we were just talking about the attack there. So there, there were obviously other goals within the team. I think I forget which season. I think it was that oh eight oh nine one I just referenced was. Uh, I think Liverpool came second. Uh, United went on a run with Fernand and Vidic at the back. I think it was maybe like the last 12 games or something they got clean sheets in, which is just hard to compete with. The one that we referenced with um, Robin and Johnson in it for Chelsea, Wayne Bridge was talking about that team. And he said that if they went 2-0 up, Mourinho would essentially, to the team, declare to be the opposite of what we were talking about City last week, where he'd be happy with the two yeah. and wouldn't want them to exert themselves any more than they had to to just coast the rest of the game out. But that season, I mean, we're just talking about attacks here. They conceded 15 goals over the whole season, that team. That is unbelievable. Arsenal conceded five against Liverpool a fortnight ago. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... I, I think when you talk about that, the, the way that the league seems to have changed in terms of how... I mean, it's kind of, in the past, the, the term defences win you well, titles. Well, that, that was Mourinho at his most devilish and charming as a manager. Yeah, so it's kind of it definitely has transitioned now in terms of sheer ferocity and dominance in the midfield and forward can easily just do the job. And that has kind of come over from the Spanish game quite a bit mm-hmm. um, with teams like Barcelona dominating possession and not, you know, often not, like, I mean, fielding... Like if you took like the prime Barcelona team of having like Mascarano at your back, at the back, if you if you took that team and tried to get them to play like a Premier League team, it just wouldn't work no. at all. I mean, you just that even just the area aerial superiority from set pieces. I mean, you just couldn't, you can't, def- they wouldn't have been able to defend against that. Hence, whether could Messi do it on a cold night? <laughs> yeah, so ridiculous. But I, I do, yeah, I do think maybe the art of defending has maybe been lost a bit. And you kind of look at. Well, Once upon a time, the... you could look at like the world's top defenders, and it'd be you could name quite clear like the upper echelon. I think it's a little bit harder to now. We've got a few names, but well, dis- not the dis- sort of level that we used to have. Well, disregarding the goalkeeper and the two centre backs, are there really any other defensive positions on the pitch anymore? Because mm-hmm. right and left wing backs are effectively wing backs these days, and they're not even, their defensive duties are getting less and less. I just thought with the United one, it was interesting that they had, they got more goals in oh six oh seven. So bear in mind all those attacks we said, but yeah. by that point they had Ronaldo and Rooney, but they didn't have Tevez, didn't have Berbatov, and they actually ended up scoring comfortably more league goals that year. Um, moving on to City, who are winning at the moment, uh, uh, that the last season of Sané, Aguero, and Sterling as their uh, most used front three, 106 league goals, the highest scoring um, a, a team in Premier League history. Where towards the end of the season they had to just set themselves a centurion mark to make things worth playing for. That is one which I would kind of turn my nose up at seeing it on a list compared to the other attacks. But then when you see it on paper like that, I know they had others chip it in, but it's quite hard to ignore when you see figures like that for a team. The um, City team of 2013-2014, the uh, the infamous Gerard Slipier, um, they broke the 100 mark on that because quite famously that I'll touch on them in a bit. The Liverpool's own SAS, whatever. Liverpool just scored goals for fun that season, but conceded goals. But they, they scored over 100. But City still managed to score more than them. So it was obviously you're looking at Aguero, but people forget Negredo had a great season that year. He was like the perfect foil for Aguero, and he got uh, 20 odd goals. Something we touched on the other day that Jeco has maybe been underrated down the years. He chipped in with a lot of goals, and so did Nasri. Nasri was on the, in the mid teens in that. Yeah, with the goals he chipped in. So, I think 
we have a tendency to look at City under Pep, but if you do look a little bit beyond that, they were scoring goals for fun long before that. One which uh, I can't not mention if you go back to 03-04 with uh, Perez, Lundberg, Burkamp and Henri. Invincible season, obviously. I think it's uh, the most free-flowing attack I've seen in that they just made football in general look so simple in the way you had Vieira that could win that back in midfield and then you could just spray out to those wings who would go past people. they put a shift in back when needed to, which is maybe not something that you associate with Perez, who was just more of a fancy player to look at, who who did his did his bit. He wasn't uh, one who's going to fly in as challenges, but he did a, a bit more. But in terms of attacking those three, they're probably some of the best wingers the league's ever seen in terms of being just an out-and-out winger. And then when you've got Burkamp and Henri in the middle, you can't really go too far wrong with that. But that would be more of a full team effort, I think, I think on paper you could easily say Burkamp and Omri, two of the best strikers the league's ever seen on immediately that one but I think that one comes a lot more down to the whole 11 more than maybe a front line which we've seen previously also fits in something we touched on where we're talking about Burkamp and Omri as a two aren't we if you were to try and stick in a 4-3-3 you are going to have trouble saying maybe if you're putting Burkamp for the middle He's not necessarily that guy who's going to lead the line. Omri, we know he'd like to come in off the left, but he wouldn't necessarily want to be, right, you have to play on the left. It's, he needs more freedom than that. So, again, it shows how the game sort of developed in the last 10 years or so that those positions have changed. There was there was one more on, on this list in particular, which was going all the way back to 98-99, uh, and that was uh, Giggs, Beckham, Cole and York, mm-hmm. uh, where Cole and York have 53 between the pair of them. I mean, it's, it's not one that I can profess to having great memories of watching week in, week out, but you certainly hear the way they're spoken about in terms of being maybe the best ever Premier League team. Well, you weren't born, so you, you, you weren't... Well, you weren't 98, born. 99? I thought you said 19... I was going <laughs> to... Do you think he is? <laughs> <laughs> These round cheeks. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, they're certainly one which uh, you, you look at on paper, but when you compare it, I don't think I could have it as my best ever, purely for the fact that I don't have much more than seeing highlight videos, which you I've seen as an Arsenal fan, can make just about any player look brilliant. Not to disregard them, but you can also say the thing you said about it being a great Arsenal team that brought out the best in Burkamp and Henry. There's a great team behind yeah. them as well. But Cole, yeah, in a segment like this, you have to mention Cole and York. And if you're going for the attack with the most depth, they also had Solskjaer and Sheringham on the bench. So <laughs> that's not four bad strikers. If you had to say like we've got to take four strikers. That might be the collective four you'd pick. Um, do you have any more to say before we uh, move on to the FA Cup, which I know you want to get into? Well, we haven't really mentioned. Obviously, we've kind of just stuck with um, the title winners of the, the last few years in respect to the respect. Well, we've mentioned one group of Liverpool players. We've only mentioned Chelsea, United, then um, City. I I don't think there is any other. You can't really mention anywhere else. I mean, we're not going to. There's no Tottenham units which we've seen which are worthy of mentioning in uh-huh. recent years. Apart from a few in, like individuals, let's say sharing him um, with Ferdinand, I have a bit of respect. Mm, um, but there's definitely, um, I mean, I was trying to potentially think of a Newcastle starting lineup, but Shearer just seems a limelight as an individual. Um, there isn't really anybody else you could go to. The ones I touched on with Liverpool, SAS, Sturridge, and Suarez that season were unbelievable, and and 
kind of to add more credit to them as an attacking unit, Liverpool could not defend for shit that season. Scored over 100, but conceded over 50. So that kind of speaks volumes. And people forget behind that, they had Coutinho and Sterling as part of the attack. If you said now, you have Sturridge, Suarez, Coutinho and Sterling. That's, that's pretty good with Gerard line deep. It's, it's a good attacking unit. And if you're going to bring up SAS and goals in the Prem, I guess we do have to mention um, Shearer and Sutton. They did score crazy amount of goals and win the title but I do think I'm not going to say Shearer carried him but there's there is an imbalance in terms of who the the main man is there isn't there he's he's Shearer's got a freakish amount of goals and I think Sutton's part of the one cap club for England I think if I'm not mistaken which if you're that great yourself you'll probably get more than that for England yeah, we're not giving him any more credit than he needs on air either. Not after his uh, <laughs> Um All right, to move on then, if I just uh, ask who you all would take as your uh, was your best, I, I'll say that for me, from memory, I'm going with uh, Tevez, Ronaldo, uh, and Rooney uh, as my best. But if I uh, take yours too, and then we'll uh, move on. For nostalgia purposes, I did want to say Liverpool's SAS, <laughs> but. Um... Yeah, I think I think those three that you've just named there, I think they worked well as a unit. Individually they were unbelievable as well. Um I didn't think it was necessarily always like as a three, I was, I would say Salah Mane for me they were like the sort of the, the right sort of balance. But Tevez, Rooney and Ronaldo just have so much quality there that you, you could kind of force them into any sort of formation team and, and they'd be unbelievable. So I'll go for them. I I'm in line with you two. I think they're the three that they're the three that strike the most fear into you in terms of you see them line up on the opposite, you know that the Vents is going to have to work bloody hard and if they can do anything at all... You'd be scared just looking at I mean, I mean, to take I mean, to take nothing away from those other other strike forces, I mean, it's just when you look at those three individually, and yes, it is individual achievements as well, I mean, you just know against those three that there are going to be days of where you can be having a blinder against them, but they can just easily just put a few past you and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. Would you call uh, Sane, Sterling and Aguero the real SAS? <laughs> to be fair, they could they could do it. It's a good, but you did also make the point that you've never seen someone less convincing in front of Golden Sterling. Though, so <laughs> as, much, as much as he has got goals to his name, that does have to go against him. All right, then, closing out today's episode. Uh, we closed out last week's episode with uh, the FA Cup still going on. Liverpool were a goal down. Uh, obviously, it didn't quite go the way they wanted the team. They put out reflected as uh, if they didn't have too much of an interest in going the distance in the Cup uh, as much as what Klopp will say now. So the big question here is, uh, what can be done to bring value back to the FA Cup? I, I think it's plain and simple. You take away the uh, well, whatever you call it, Carling Cup. Um, I've forgotten what even what it's called now. Carabao, Carabao Cup. You take that away, and you just have one cup oh, wow. in this league. You Jeez, don't, that's not that's not what I thought when you were going to say it's simple. If you if you take away that, I think it showed. It, it, well, there's only one cup in the league then that matters, what? and you take that out of but the people, equation. But people see two, and they think that neither matter. Yeah, but I'm saying that it. it, it well, essentially what you're saying is the lines have become blurred between the two hasn't it because it used to be the League Cup's always traditionally been slightly less regarded yeah. and the FA Cup was a, a prestigious sort of trophy to win yeah. on a similar level to the League and the Champions League it was on that sort of level and, and it no longer is the lines have kind of become blurred I personally think that's partly due to 
more and more foreign managers. Because if, if I went to manage in Spain, I wouldn't care too much about the Copa del Rey. I'd be worried about the Champions League and the league. Because from the outside looking in, you're not looking at that co- domestic cup competition. And I think the same things kind of happened with the FA Cup, which is a shame. You'd also say as well that like certain, like I mean, the the positioning of the final for uh, like the it, it being earlier, uh, the FA Cup being later, potentially the crunch time of the league and yeah. the Champions League, yeah. it priorities and stuff get questioned. So you could also argue as well if you had to keep them both. Switching the positions of them potentially. Do you do you think that um, it's due to the fact that we've not really had a, a title race for the last few years? It's been it's been quite obvious who it's going to be, and then you did see it taken more seriously when Leicester were clearly going to be the ones who were going to win the league. So, do you think if we had more competition and say we had four teams down the stretch all going for the league, and so that would make winning another cup more valuable because you're not going to put all your eggs in one basket then and say look, we're going to go all out for this because you're putting too much on the line then. And then if everyone has to go for it, it breeds everyone having to go for it. Because, I mean, you see now a cup set, it doesn't really have the same feel because Wolves beating Liverpool didn't feel like a big deal because you saw the Liverpool team that was out. And then you see, like, a, a, a say you have a League One team upset a Premier League team, all likelihood it's going to be that someone's going to have their weak team out at the top. So it doesn't quite have the same feeling to it. So I think you need whether it's like you uh, used to have in the, the League Cup where they say you could only make a certain amount of changes to your team each week or you're going to be fined or they're going to, it might have to say with ban players or something because a fine doesn't mean much to a lot of teams. The, the only thing I will say though is to flip the argument, Liverpool have kind of disrespected the Cup this year. But then the argument always goes that, you know, Last season, I think three of the sort of big teams were in the semi-finals, so they've obviously taken it seriously enough. Um, City, for example, in the League Cup, have just trounced Burton nine nil. So it's not that like they're not taking these competitions seriously. Pep certainly seems to be one that wants to win everything. So, and on the issue of upsets, maybe I don't know whether we just become desensitized to it or what. But like Newport just beat Leicester. Leicester put out a full team. Now maybe they didn't show the right attitude. Some would argue, which is probably arguable, yeah, but. That's a that's an upset. That's a League Two team beating a Premier League team. I think the way it has to be looked at as well, because it seems it seems that it only matters when United win a trophy, and it seems like it's like bitter. But United won the FA Cup, and it was seemed like oh, United are bringing something back to the FA Cup. Arsenal have won three in five years, and people are saying well, it's only the FA Cup, and that was because of the opposition they beat. But you think the year we beat Villa in the final, they beat Liverpool in the semi final. Everyone thought it was going to be Gerrard's last game on his birthday. Not forget, <laughs> yeah. they were to, it was already being planned, Arsenal against Liverpool. Yeah. And then they've ended up facing Villa and it's gone that way. And then it's, it seems that Leicester was putting it because it was just Villa. But as, as you said, we've had big teams and it seems now that it, it depends on the team rather than the competition. Because the, the Chelsea-Spurs uh, game that you and Sean went to, watching that on TV, that had that big feel yeah. to it. Mm. Um, particularly when uh, they came back late and you saw the way that it, the way that it meant, I'm not sure. Do you think that having the semi-finals at Wembley does anything to it? But then it it, it helps uh, give the the lesser teams something to drive towards, and the fact they're going to get to play there. And I think if you can't get up for a game at Wembley, then you need to question the manager at some point there. So, but I think you could probably move it to another big stadium and the, the lower club still has something yeah. to aim for and, and you'll still play a big club in the FA Cup semi-finals. I think that's enough of a sort of day out for you, if you like. Do you think you need, um, do you think you need like more cup ties on TV? So 
obviously you're going to have Arsenal United on TV in the next round. But do you need more of, say, the Leicester Newports than the Liverpool Wolves? Because Liverpool Wolves, we, we, we see twice a season anyway. And if, if you see Liverpool Wolves on TV as a league fixture for the for the kickoff, it might be one where you think, you know, I can I can go out and make sure I'm back for the late game because that one looks like it's going to be a dead cert. So what's the difference in seeing that being a knockout tie? You'd much rather see Everton against the top of the championship than you would see Liverpool Wolves. So maybe you see more of these, you drum up some more interest in it. And I don't think the FA are helping themselves because they, they screw the fans over in that, they seem to do it. They only care about what the TV has. And if, you, if you're not going to have the fans getting behind it, the way that it's looked, I mean, the, the tickets still haven't been confirmed for Arsenal against uh, United next Friday because the FA haven't decided on the allocations that need to be had for the ground. And if you're not and if you're not in demand to get it for Arsenal United, I dread to think what they're going to be like for a, a, a far lesser game between, say, two League One sides who could get their, their chance to be in the fourth round on TV. So they, they, they need to kind of help themselves out in that aspect. And even like, I don't know how to explain this best. So the Super Bowl is the Super Bowl. But people who aren't fans of, Amer- of American football get behind it because they're told what the Super Bowl is. Maybe you need for the generations coming up, you need to tell them the FA Cup is what it is because... When I was younger, you used to stop for the FA Cup yeah. final. People, you'd have it as the three. The, uh, the I'm sure it was three o'clock kickoff, wasn't it? That was yeah. the one game of season yeah. you'd have as a three o'clock kickoff. Sorry. And no matter who it was, uh, there was the season where it was was it Portsmouth Cardiff or something along those lines, and you still sat down and watched it because it was the FA Cup final. And no matter who it is, you need to get that in. I think, and they had like the TV programs on BBC One, so you had no adverts, and they run from like ten o'clock in the fucking morning. Gary earned his money that day. He had to do a lot of filler. I think where you need to highlight the problem is at what point did the FA Cup stop being a serious success? It literally. I mean, you know, was it during the United years when you guaranteed, like, you know, if United didn't win the Premier League that year and Arsenal won it or Chelsea won it, they won the FA Cup and it was kind of like a safety net, safety nets triumph. I think we just we've just had upsets and then so we had the big one where it was. United Chelsea, it was t- one of the worst games I've ever seen where Drogba nicked it in extra yeah. time. You had the Arsenal United one, which was a terrible game, but Arsenal won it on penalties, but at least you had that. So when you're having a terrible game and it's terrible teams, you're probably going to have less incentive to watch it. And I, I think we, we've, we've spoken about on here about several things. If people don't tell you something's big or people tell you it's only the FA Cup, naturally you get in your head it's only the FA Cup. I remember being in Cardiff for the Arsenal-Hull FA Cup final and assuming that the place was going to stop and you were going to find somewhere simple to watch it. We went in one place, there was a live band playing over the top of the FA Cup final. We had to scowl like like a little place out that was actually showing the game. And that was, even then, I know it was Hull, but it was a big team in Arsenal in the Cup. And maybe you need someone like, uh, not not to single them out, because Arsenal, I think, have gone for it because they knew they weren't going to win anything else. So... Liverpool maybe make the exception this season, but Liverpool, Spurs, United the last couple of years, uh, Chelsea, when you know you're not going to win it, you should put all your investments in it. And then the likes of like Everton, why are they not going all out for it? Rafa spoke today, did his press conference ahead of the game of Blackburn, and he said, it's not realistic for us to win this cup, so he's going to rest players. You're saying that to your players before the game. I I think you've got to look at, like, why is it not a big deal for the clubs? I mean, 
is the prize purse like? I, mean, I don't know what the prize purse is like for the FA Cup. This was probably my suggestion to get it more with this financial incentive because the whole thing of why people want to qualify for the Champions League is the money aspect. Yeah. So if you make it, the FA's got money. You make it a financial thing each round that you get a good financial boost. More and more clubs will go for it. Or you throw one of the three, one of the four Champions League spots that's, into the FA Cup. That, that's the most common thing, is it? But I, I just don't see how they're going to do it. I just don't see how they're going to be able to. I mean, it, the interesting thing but is... But it, it would have more importance to the Cup. There's no doubt about it, it. It may just come down to just something on a basic instant level. It needs it to... It, like, not to call it something different, but it could just need a, a rebrand. Update the Cup. Yeah. Give it what? some sort of new lease of life. Um, I think with, with it, if you take away that fourth Champions League spot, then they've spoken before about how we were at one point close to losing our fourth spot. And all you need then is one season where it is someone like, say, yeah. say Fulham somehow won the FA Cup and then they go to Champions League and they get embarrassed about 6-0 by the two top teams in the group and then the other team beats them. You lose so many points that it then affects you in the long run. So I think even if they did that, it's not going to last too long. Yeah, but we're then it's you're you're playing off. I mean, I I think the prem, all of the Premier League teams then field better teams, and it just because the, the the sheer chance of something like that happening it becomes less and less. I mean, I I think so. Interestingly, the the way that things are looking at the moment. I mean, the FA Cup's in very early stages. The the League Cup potentially is either going to be uh, Chelsea v Man City or Tottenham v Man City final. I think the bigger the two finals is Tottenham Man City because I think it's a bigger bigger topic for Tottenham to try and win a title and to beat a City team at the moment is a big statement and a big story. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't see how the FA Cup is going to top the the potential League Cup final this year. I think the thing you touched on with with Arsenal maybe not getting the due credit for the, for some of their wins in the FA Cup was that it's almost become like a boxing bout where it's not necessarily that you've won the bout it's who you beat to do it and and that's why the FA Cup sometimes has been a little disregarded uh, in recent times whereas kind of before it was say like you're not going to enjoy the example but 2001 FA Cup Liverpool Arsenal the Michael Owen final that felt like a huge game because it was two big teams at the time doing it. And I think the other thing that you mentioned where I thought Klopp shouldn't have rested as many players as he did. I thought it was a bit, well, desperately disrespectful of the competition, but I don't think clubs have to choose so much directly between league and cup. You can do both. It's not that crazy, even though I normally do understand rotation policy. But the clubs lower down, Newcastle so much, they're in a relegation battle, so I get why you rest them. But people in mid-table, like you said, Everton, Leicester, you aren't going to qualify for Europe, but you're not going to go down. Why would you not roll the dice and go for the cup? You're you're not losing anything from it, and I think that's where the FA Cup losing its value. I mean, just to go, Arsenal beat Chelsea and still didn't get really any credit, so it seems like it doesn't matter what goes on there. I think there's also that idea as well, where it was a little bit like with Fergie. If if United had a season where they won the League Cup, that was in amidst years of you were winning other things, you're winning leagues, Champions League, or whatever. So as much as it was a season of down season, you won the trophy. And it was all part of like a wider success, whereas Arsenal have won the FA Cups and people have been expecting to build more success in the league and it hasn't happened. Yeah, I think we'll have to uh, call it a day there because, uh, I mean, we could, we could go on all, all, all day on this. I think if they appoint us to start dealing with the FA Cup, then uh, maybe we'll, we'll get it sorted. So uh, the spitballing pod FA Cup sounds good. <laughs> but yeah, as I said, we'll be back next week. Uh, 
Townsend will be joining us. We've had a Statman Steam. It, it looks like we've got um, uh, Transfer News Townsend, as that was the last time he came on. <laughs> so, uh, as always, if you could uh, give us a like, a share, a repost on uh, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, Spotify, and all that business. Uh, I mean, last last week we had uh, Alex Zippy's coat up down the mic. We've got it again this week. Hopefully he doesn't uh, betray me next time uh, we do change my mind. And uh, we'll be back as always. Thank you. <laughs>